We'll talk a little bit about the, uh, where this process is going, and I think that's the key word here is process. Um, in other words, uh, I never intended for this to be the be-all and end-all of communication. In other words, we're all going to walk out of here knowing exactly what to do on the communication frontier. But rather, I intended it to be a kind of unfolding that would start today, and we would do this again subsequent years and build on that. So, so we're going to roam around quite a bit, I think, today, but uh, dig in as well. That's not to say we're going to stay on the surface of communication. I think with the folks we have uh, on the panel, we're going to dig in. Uh, and I think you'll see that it's a pretty messy field. It's uh, uh, this whole notion of communication. It's, uh, uh, anyway, it, it's mushy, and uh, it's hard to get your hands around it. And I think uh, we're going to sort of uh, demonstrate that quite clearly. Um, the other thing is a logistic uh, item, and that is that uh, we had hoped, and I still hope, that at least half the time allocated to this workshop this morning will be dedicated to an open exchange between you in the audience and panelists up here. And among the panelists, I don't want the panelists to feel as though they can't ask each other questions and have some kind of uh, exchange between or among themselves. So I want to open it up. There's a break scheduled for 10 o'clock. My feeling is I'm going to make it optional. If you want to leave, you want to go take a break for 10 minutes, then go ahead. And, uh, but I'm not going to say 10 o'clock, let's all walk out. I don't know where we're going to be at 10 o'clock, but uh, all of the presenters are going to take about 20, 25 minutes to give their presentations in the interest of queuing up the discussion and giving you some framework within which to we can have this discourse. That said, let me get moving here so I don't chew up much more time. This morning, in this order, we'll have myself just trying to kick it off, Tony Sochi, AMS, just trying to queue up the other speakers. And then I'm going to be followed by Arthur Lupia, who's the uh, uh, Hal Varian Professor of Political Science at the University of Michigan and Research Professor at the Institute for Social Research. He's done a lot of work on communication, surveying, uh, sociological aspects of communication, and so we're really pleased to have him. He has numerous awards in this field and has a lot of accomplishments to date in this particular field of uh, communication, which uh, inherently invokes psychology, sociology, and uh, much more. Uh, he'll be followed by Baruch Fischoff. He's the Howard Heights University professor in the Department of Social and Decision Sciences and Department of Engineering and Public Policy at Carnegie Mellon University. He too has a long background, a deep background in psychology, social sciences, and has been working in this realm of communication for quite some time and has a foot in the science realm as well. He'll be the second speaker. Our third speaker is Chris Mooney. He's the author of, uh, well, he's a freelance writer, first of all, and writes for a number of outlets. Uh, I won't go down the list. His recent book, one of two books that he's written in the last three or four years, is the uh, called Storm World, Hurricanes, Politics, and the Battle Over Global Warming. Many of you are familiar with it, I'm sure. And his uh, prior book, a couple years before that, was uh, <clears throat> titled The Republican War on Science. 
both of which have gotten significant notoriety. Um, and I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean that uh, it, it's been, uh, the last book in particular has been uh, embraced fairly broadly as a good piece of writing. Uh, and the last speaker, and certainly not least, is Molly Bentley, who is the, uh, she's uh, from BB, BBC Science, and she does a radio program on science reporting or on science itself, and uh, works for BBC here in the United States, is located in Oakland, California. And so I think with that lineup, we've got a pretty good, uh, we can really get this topic off the ground. So with that said, let me just set up the discussion and then I'll have the panelists come up. Can I get to my first? Oh, I've got it, right? If you've been down the coast of the Gulf here, you've seen this scene, no doubt. You have, right? Okay. Um, anyway, um, can I ask a question before I get started? How many people are directly involved in communication in the room? Okay, thanks. Um, just wanted to know. Okay, let, let me start. Uh, way back in time, and if you bear with me, I'll skip a handful of these slides. Uh, Walter Lippmann, the noted uh, journalist and uh, entrepreneur journalist uh, involved in government work as well, public relations during the war, World War I. Um, he wrote a book in 1920 called Liberty and the News, and in that book he said a number of things that I think could easily be said today about the state of communication today, the state of uh, a number of institutions uh, involved with communication. So let me uh, go through a little bit of Lippmann's, uh, what was in his head at the time, and bring us into the 21st century. Um, he basically said that without protection against propaganda, without standards of evidence, uh, which was his intended definition of journalistic objectivity this process of verification. Uh, without the criteria of emphasis, the living substance of all popular decisions is exposed to every prejudice and to infinite exploitation. I think most of us can see, see that on a regular basis today. Uh, I think that comes as no surprise to most of us. Uh, and while we're on the subject of uh, objectivity, Lippmann, in this book, laid out the notion of objectivity in the realm of journalism. And he said, look, uh, journalists, like scientists, are not objective. None of us are. But we expect the methodology or the process to lead to a kind of objectivity, the process being a process of verification. Okay, So it doesn't mean that we can't be biased. We are. But presumably and hopefully, we have a process that trims down or pairs back some of that bias. And in that rendition, he basically said neutrality is not a fundamental principle of, uh, principle of journalism. I would add to that, neither is balance. Uh, because the bottom line was, what are the facts? What's the truth of the situation? What are the facts? And so uh, uh, the sense of neutrality, neutrality that we sometimes see uh, uh, network news uh, broadcasters uh, 
take this sort of neutral voice, well, it's an artifice. It's not, you know, that's, that's not objectivity, okay? Uh, mistrust. Uh, now I'd like to just help try to paint the landscape in which communication is taking place today. In a survey in 1960 conducted uh, among people in the U.S., uh, people were asked if they agreed or disagreed with this statement. And the statement is, overall, most people can be trusted. At that time, 65% of those who responded responded, yes, they can, affirmatively. Same survey was given in the 90s sometime, and only 35% of the people responded affirmatively. So we've lost a lot of trust in our institutions and people sort of trusting other people. Media believability. Um, there was a study, a survey that just came out last week, and it basically pointed to the fact that uh, there's significant declines in the percentage of Americans who say they believe all or most of news reporting. And so we've got a growing skepticism within the public about our institutions for delivering so-called objective information. Uh, I'm going to skip this. Uh, we skip that too. Yet after Lipman, yeah, thanks. You can go back and look at it later. Um, after Lipman um, formulated this notion of objectivity, um, he basically his conclusion was that if we have a process for journalists, whereby this process of verification, they didn't need to worry about their biases. And so, in the end, he basically thought that facts matter, that if we give people the facts, they'll make the right, they'll come to the right conclusions. And yet, after he said that, he reconsidered that idea. And I'm just going to walk you through this colloquy here. Uh, he started reading studies in psychology that were coming out at the time, pre-1920, psychology and persuasion. And he began to fear that the problem, problems being failures of the press, being remedied by more responsible reporting, objectivity, verification. That the average citizen could make intelligent judgments if presented with the facts, went beyond censorship, ignorance, or distortion. It went to the way, the very nature and workings of the human perception and the human mind. Uh, we humans, according to a number of studies now out, a number of books, we don't automatically and objectively see what's before our eyes. We filter the world, outer world, to correspond to our inner world, and we interpret the world as we are. And so he worried that even if you cleaned up all these institutions, even if you got objectivity, even if, if, if media said, okay, we'll do this, we'll, we'll, we'll buy into this process of verification. Uh, he began to worry that that's not enough, that facts alone don't inherently lead to people making the so-called right decisions based on reason and facts. And so I want to sort of bring us up to the 21st century and ask a series of questions which I hope our panelists will dig into here. Uh, this particular statement comes from George Lakoff, uh, and he calls this a communication myth. And I'm raising it as a question because I'm not sure it is. I don't know. The truth will set us free. If we just tell people the facts, since people are basically rational beings, they'll all reach the right conclusions. I think we in the science community have, 
have felt that way, uh, whether explicitly or implicitly, uh, for many years. That if we got the facts right, if we got it out there, if we said it as eloquently as we could say it, decisions, rational decisions, would follow. And I think we've discovered that's not necessarily true. Uh, don't we all frame things, often unconsciously, uh, and isn't it how we organize and comprehend reality? Well, Lakoff means by frames that we have these metaphors in the back of our head, they're unconscious, and that sometimes language can tap into those metaphors and provoke a uh, response. And it's his idea, that, and others, that, that by, by framing issues, by tapping into those subconscious or unconscious uh, metaphors that we have, uh, we do a better job of reaching people. Now, in this discussion, that's up for grabs. I'm not saying that's a given. I'm just saying this is what Lakoff and others have said. Uh, information and action, are they related? I mean, if you inform somebody, you do it well, you give them the facts, does it lead to uh, action, uh, or perhaps the action that you desired? Uh, does one lead to the other automatically? Uh, I'm going to skip this next example here and just uh, walk down to this piece here. John Krosnick from Stanford University does a number of surveys. He's a sociologist, political scientist, and he's been working on surveys about attitudes about global warming. And he was interviewed recently in 2006, and in that interview, Krosnick was saying that, uh, or the, uh, the interviewee was, uh, was uh, paraphrasing Krosnick, and that uh, Krosnick was concerned that his research finds that scientists are frustrated, basically saying we have a really serious problem with the environment, how come nobody is listening? Well, I want to ask the question, if the goal of science community is to inform, then why the frustration? If we felt that what we were doing is informing, why are we frustrated? Or did we mean to do more than inform? And are the two the same? Did we want to change behavior or inform or both? Did we want the information to lead to behavioral changes? And I'm raising the question again following that. Uh, what went wrong? Or did anything go wrong? Or was it our perception that something went wrong? Does it follow that if you give people the facts, they should act accordingly? Uh, would one take the same approach to informing as one would take to shaping behavior? Um, are these different approaches to communication? My gut answer without knowing a thing is that yes, I suspect they are. Uh, do reason and matter and facts matter in shaping behavior or prompting people to act on knowledge? Uh, uh, that's up for grabs. Or are we relegated now to communicating via the use of dueling frames? Are we now in a situation where we have to get out there and put our frame around a set of facts, try to tap into somebody's subconscious metaphors to, to sort of open them up to the message or the facts? Uh, or is framing really the way people have always incorporated knowledge and acted on that knowledge, or, and we just didn't realize it? The frames trump facts, a facts irrelevant. Uh, can we hope for something better from our collective labors uh, in gathering intelligence or being intelligent? Uh, you know, we spend our time as scientists doing things we think are smart, you know, trying to dig out facts and so on. Uh, 
In a recent article in the Columbia Journalism Review, uh, Brent Cunningham, one of the editors of Columbia Journalism Review, said uh, basically, do we need a rhetoric beat, a rhetoric beat in the media to help political discourse uh, to clear it up, to make it as clear and intellectually honest as possible? In other words, pull these metaphors apart that are hanging out there, pull these frames apart so people can understand what these frames are uh, encapsulating. And I've given some examples here. Uh, these are some of the frames that, 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 that uh, Cunningham referred to. Uh, the notion of death tax versus a state tax. I mean, when you think about it, it, it has a, a sense of a different way of thinking about it when you really give these enhanced interrogation techniques versus torture. Unlawful enemy combatant versus prisoner of war. 9-11 as an act of war versus an act of mass murder. Uh, and global warming versus climate variability. I could go on and on, but you get the idea. These are, these are so-called frames, competing frames. Um, the facts, and, well, I've gone through that, yeah. Uh, we've been there. Or is framing just spin? Is this just another word for public relations? And, and are we now asking the science community to engage in public relations? And has it really come down to researchers framing their own work or having others frame it for them? Are you left in that dilemma where if you don't frame it, somebody will? And therefore, in order to take control of you know, your information, so to speak, uh, you're almost forced into this position? And let me leave you with this as a measure of the landscape in which we are being asked to communicate in. And so, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, uh, thanks to Tony for putting this together. This is a, a very nice opportunity. Um, my background is I, I have a PhD from Caltech. And uh, what that means is I spent a lot of time with applied math and statistics. And when you do that, and you want to have an audience of more than 10 people, you have to figure out ways to try and convey complex things uh, in a different way. And so uh, that not only became a strategy that I used to talk about my own work, it became uh, what I study and what I want to talk to you about today. So I conduct research on how people make decisions when they don't have a lot of information. As some of you know from personal experience, uh, in politics, the field that I study, uh, making decisions without a lot of information is something that happens a lot. Um, so how do, how do you convey ideas in that setting? Well, if you understand how and why people think about political issues, um, I and a bunch of others have, have, have examined, uh, have explored how you can develop more effective strategies for reaching your target audience and, and getting them to think in different ways. So uh, what's at issue? Uh, there's an outcome that you may desire. It might be informing people uh, uh, new things about the climate. It might be getting them to change their behaviors in ways that maybe reduce emissions. And so how do you do that? Well, there are a lot of different ideas. There's education as a general matter. You can write books and articles and things of that nature. Uh, you hold seminars, uh, mass mailings, websites, uh, ways to try and persuade people. Is this a good idea? Are, are these the types of things you should be spending your time on? 
And some of it depends on the relationship between how hard it is to put together and what the ultimate effect is. All right. So what do we think about these effects? Well, typically, an education effort is formed by a group that I'll call us. Um, we have an idea of things that are socially beneficial, uh, that people ought to know. Uh, we've sorted through the facts, and we believe that, at least in some areas, we've reached the right conclusions. And so we decide to try and inform people. But more often than not, it doesn't work out the way we thought it did. People don't tune in. Or if they tune in, they don't pay attention. Or if they pay attention, they don't remember. And even if they remember, they don't act. Right? So people like us can find this very frustrating. Why does it happen? Well, there is a common explanation. And the common explanation is it's their fault. They are the audience. Right? Uh, they're ignorant. Boy, if they just knew what was important, they'd tune in. Or they're lazy. Right? Why are they spending all this time with ESPN and Paris Hilton and Britney Spears? Why aren't they paying attention to us? Or maybe it's apathy. Maybe they'll tell you they know things, but they just won't act. Okay? And so that's a very common view. And what I want to suggest to you is, if you think that's the problem, then the real problem is you. Okay? Uh, but fortunately, social science, some things that people have, have learned, uh, can help you uh, be more effective in dealing with an audience. So what we share, the we that we had before, are good intentions. Uh, but at the moment of execution, things start to fall apart. Because we typically base our stories about what kinds of persuasive efforts will work and which won't on flawed and centuries-old theories of information and learning. Things that have been you know, proven false, ideas that have been proven false by social scientists 10, 20, 50, 70 years ago. And yet they remain as part of the folk theory of how people learn. For example, many people think, well, I'm good at persuasion. I'm good at teaching. You say, well, how do you know that? And in your memory banks, what you recall are instances where you said something to someone, and they said, yes, yes, no, I get it. Now I remember that. Let me suggest to you that those events are far more likely to be remembered than what typically happens when you talk to somebody, which is they nod politely. They give the appearance that they're listening, but in fact, they're thinking about something else. And seconds later, in terms of their memory, it's as if your conversation never happened. That is the typical outcome of a conversational attempt. But we don't remember that, right? Because we don't see that, and people try and mask it. But let me suggest that that's typically what happens. So for you to try and educate an audience, to try and inform them, you've got to overcome that type of odds. So um, what I'm going I'm to uh, tell you a couple stories about what social scientists know. But because attention is short, I'm going to give you the short version of what the lesson here is. You and your friend is, are walking through the woods. Your friend gets lost. You want your friend to not be lost. How do you do this? Well, you could yell out directions. You could say, all right, now take three steps to the left. Right? Now take three steps to the right. But let me, let me suggest to you that if you don't begin by knowing where they are, they walk into trees. They fall into rivers. If you want to get someone from where they are to where you want them to be, first you have to know where they are. And a lot of what social science is about is uncovering where they are and what kind of steps they can take, what kind of steps they're willing to take to get them to places you might want them to be. I'm going to talk about three uh, kinds of examples from the social sciences in terms of how we figure out where they are and where they can go. 
going to draw your attention to the science of attention, what people can pay attention to. I'm going to talk about the science of elaboration, which is technical talk for thinking about something. And then I'm going to talk about credibility, which is um, if I'm thinking about something, if I'm actually listening to you, how do I decide whether or not to believe you? Okay. So first I want to talk about attention. Uh, there are two kinds of attention. There, there's, there's working memory, and, and that's the bottleneck. That's one, and we'll talk about long-term memory in a second. But working memory is, is what you're doing right now. You try to pay attention to things. It's your ability to process information in the moment. What we know about working memory is that its capacity is extraordinarily limited. You can hold seven plus or minus two chunks of information in your short-term memory at any time. What does that mean? Well, right now, I'm, I'm speaking, and you're looking at me as though you're listening. Okay? But what are, you, what, is it, what are you able to think about right now? Well, you can think about what I'm saying right now, or you can think about where you're going to go next, or what you did this morning, or the laundry, or whether you're going to meet your plane, and so forth. Any one of those things that are in your mind necessarily crowds out anything else. So if you look at the lovely curtains or, or the patterns in the wall, they crowd out your ability to pay attention to other things. When you give a speech or when you give a presentation, you're not immune from that. You're dealing with the bottleneck. And it affects how people hear you. So for example, in this speech right now, you can listen to what I'm saying right now and pay attention to it. Or you can listen to what I'm saying right now. Or right now. But at some point, it becomes very difficult. And this matters. Because sometimes when you think you give a speech, People listen to the whole thing. They hear the whole thing. They don't. They hear fragments. If you've said something very interesting that makes people think, they're probably not hearing the next couple words you say. Right? So when you're creating a speech, it's not so much about a great speech. It's about creating great moments in a speech that people will remember. Because after your speech is done, what people will remember about it is very small. Now, you might say, how small is it? Let me suggest to you. Let me ask you to think for a moment about the most important events in your life. You know, a marriage, the birth of children, a graduation from college. I would challenge you to think about that event for more than a minute. Can you generate a minute of memories about something that lasted an hour, a day, several years? In all likelihood, you can't. Even though these events you regard as important, your ability to remember them is minuscule, right? This is true in your own life, and it's true when you give a speech. Right? It's true when you give a presentation. What people remember is, is only a fragment of what you present, and it may not be what you want them to remember. So how do you succeed in this environment? Okay. Well, here's the trick. You have to get people to think about it, right? You have to get people to think about what you're saying. It's called elaboration. And I can give you technical talk about elaboration, but instead I just want to invoke Arnold Schwarzenegger. Right? And working out. Right? So when you think about something, what's happening physically? Well, in your mind, in your brain, there are neurons and there are dendrites. And dendrites are extensions, and they send electrical activity back and forth to one another. It's this electrical and chemical activity that is the, the physical basis of your thinking. When you think about something, it's like working out. You're, you're, you're making the connection between two ideas more efficient. Right? That's what thinking about it means. And you're actually, you know, physically when you work out, your muscles get stronger and bigger, able to react more. A similar process happens in your brain. It's a physical process, right? You can see it sometimes, okay? And that's what you're trying to get people to do. But because of the bottleneck of attention, 
people aren't going to be paying attention to much of what you say, and they're not going to be able to think about much of what you say. Right? So how do you get them to think about things? Right? The idea is it has to be really relevant to them. If a train is coming towards you, you pay attention to it. If you see a train sort of in the distance going at the same speed, you might not pay attention to it so much. Okay? I can go into details, but let me just give some advice. When we talk about climate science, the challenge we face is, if we're saying, let's reduce emission, someone says, why? Say, well, because there are polar ice caps and there, there are changes in the oceans. To someone, that's, those things are very far away. They're very abstract. And then if you say, OK, well, now drive a hybrid and use different light bulbs, you say, wait a minute, is that going to work? You're like, well, I'm not sure. I don't know. So the benefits are abstract, they're distant, and they're uncertain. And yet what you're asking people to do is give up something that is concrete, it's right in front of them, right? It's, it's, they can see it, and it's real. It doesn't matter what choice domain you're looking at. If you ask someone to give up something real for what to them seems like magic beans, they're typically not going to do it. So what do you do? What do you do? There is a strategy. You don't have to tell them about the abstract things necessarily. If what you want to do is get someone to change, instead you can make it close, or you can make it real, or you can make it personal. An example I like to use is global poverty is also a problem that is large, abstract, distant, right? Uh, your ability to solve it uncertain. And yet every year, you can get small children, five, six, seven years old, to raise tens of millions of dollars to combat global poverty. How do you do that? Well, you turn it into a UNICEF box. And on the box you print, if you raise 50 cents, a child will have a meal. And if you raise $4, they'll have a sweater. If you raise another amount, they'll be able to go to school. That makes it real to them. They can relate to other children, right? There's big issues with global poverty. But what I'm saying is if you want that audience to contribute, as opposed to saying, it, the problem is too big, I can't do anything, right? That is true. They can't do anything. So make it a problem that they can do something about, OK? So now, uh, everything I've said to you so far, um, we could just say, well, maybe that's just, we just know that from education. We just know that from marketing. Um, we don't really need science for this. And that might be. But when we're talking about climate change, we enter the political domain. We enter the domain of politics. And in politics, let me suggest to you that the conversational rules, the persuasive rules, change. And they change for an important reason that has to do with this figure. So my question to you is, what is that? What is that? Okay. What is it? What, any, anybody? It's a rabbit. It's a rabbit, right? No, it's, a uh, it's, a it's a rabbit duck. It's a rabbit duck. Okay. So what you have, I'm going to walk away from the mic for a second. Is that, is that going to, okay. Uh, it could be a duck. Now, what's unusual about this figure is that it has multiple meanings. And we think that's weird, right? Because we say a picture is worth a thousand words. We say that, we talk about the picture word exchange rate in that way, because most pictures have a discrete meaning, where if you look at the meaning of any word in the English language, almost any word, you can go in the dictionary, it typically has multiple meanings. Words typically have multiple meanings, such as the word duck. It means what that thing might be, and it also means this. It's called language indeterminacy, the idea that words have multiple meanings. Now, why is this changing the rules of the game? Because if you take language indeterminacy and you mix it with politics, and what's politics? 
Well, it's the forum where we have value conflicts. It's the forum where we try and work out collective decisions in, in ways that other, in, in other areas of life we can't work them out. Issues aren't born political, they become political because we can't figure out how to deal with them another way. So we have underlying value conflicts, and now we have the indeterminacy with the language. What happens when you put them together? People try and use words strategically. People try and use words to get people to think in certain ways. Right? You get language indeterminacy with a nasty edge. And it changes how people think about what they hear. It changes what they pay attention to. And if you walk into a situation thinking that this isn't relevant, if people think it's political, they're thinking about it differently. So instead of going through the technical aspects, I just want to give you an example of how different things could be. Right? So credibility is going to be the key in these circumstances, but let me give you an example. Remember math class? Second grade, third grade, fourth grade, what was that like? Well, for most of us, we were in a classroom. There were probably desks or tables, and they were pretty well organized. There was the front of the room where maybe there was a number line and some things about mathematics, and there was a teacher, maybe a podium and desk, and that, they were the center of attention. And they'd stand up there and they'd give lessons. You'd pay attention or not. You'd have tests, you'd take the test, your teacher would see it, your friends might see it, your parents would see it, right? And though, that, that's a way of developing an environment for learning. It was something we were kind of comfortable with. Now my question to you is, how would we have to change that situation to make it like political communication? Okay? So let me suggest to you uh, the changes we'd have to make. Uh, first, uh, there are no exams. There are no exams. You know things, great. You don't know things, eh. And if you had an exam, or your parents aren't going to see it, because you get to go in the voting booth by yourself. Right? You get to do whatever you want, right? cast whatever you want. That's not going to be there. Uh, there's information all over the place, not just in the front of the room, it's everywhere. You can pay attention to it if you want or not. But let me suggest that the most important difference is this. Suppose I'm your teacher and I walk up and I say, okay, class, two plus two equals four. And then right after that, someone walks up after me and says, if you believe that, it will ruin your life. That's what political communication is. Someone makes a claim about how things work and someone else says, look, not only is that wrong, but it's even wrong to think about it in that way. If you knew that that was coming, if you were a student, would you regard the first claim by the teacher in the same way? If you knew that everything, that every claim was possibly contestable, you say, wait a minute, two plus two equals four. What are you trying to do? What are you trying to convince me of? Right? It changes how people listen. It changes what you have to say. If you play by the conversational rules where you think that doesn't apply and you're like, why aren't people listening to me? Why don't they believe me? That's why. Because your credibility is uncertain. Now, when it, when it comes to politics, right, credibility is the big issue. And you might say, oh, but wait a minute. I know what I'm doing, right? Uh, I, I know my facts. I've organized them. I sh I'm credible. And what I want to suggest to you is that is the wrong way to think about credibility. Because you do not get to convey. You don't, you don't get to um, give yourself credibility. Credibility is bestowed by an audience. It is domain specific. It's the reason why you can be in a room of your peers, you can make a particular speech and they go, oh yes, that was very convincing. You can give exactly the same speech to a different audience and they won't believe you at all. Right? They'll think they won't know what you're doing. Credibility is bestowed by an audience. I've been in, I, we've, we've been at seminars where we say, well, I, I, I'm a climate scientist and I go talk to groups and people don't listen. Or I walk into churches and people question whether you know, science is even relevant here, right? And one of the challenges is how do you 
sort of convey your message in a way where people will find you credible, right? And the trick, again, we can get in mechanics, but the trick is if you want to get them from where they are to some place where you want them to be, first what you have to know is where they are. In a sense, mentally, you have to become them for a second and think about, well, what, what are the things that are important to them, right? What are the things that they are capable of hearing? That's going to affect, if you can establish that, your credibility with an audience. But the fact that you have a title, the fact that you have previous accomplishments, that doesn't guarantee your credibility. Credibility must be bestowed by the audience, and it's based on things that they want. Now, it so happens that there is a huge scientific field that studies things like credibility. It spans economics and psychology. And there are four main areas of credibility. One has to do with source attributes, and what I mean by that is attributes of the speaker, Maybe that I have a PhD. Maybe that's helpful. Not, you know, maybe I'm wearing a tie. You know, those are helpful things to some audiences. Audiences for whom it corresponds to one of two key factors. Trust, per the perception of trust and the perception of knowledgeability. The idea is if, I, if, I, if I'm presenting myself in a way such that you have a reason to trust what I'm saying and I present myself in a way that you believe that I'm knowledgeable about this, then the attention is possible. Then you might start thinking about what I'm saying. But if I don't present myself in a way such that either of those things is going on, that is, I may seem knowledgeable, but for some reason I'm not trustworthy, you've just lost, you're going to lose the attention battle. People, aren't, people are not going to have an incentive to listen to you. Or if you seem trustworthy but ignorant, the same thing. Right? Necessary conditions for persuasion are having the kinds of attributes that give people an incentive to trust you and to see you as being informed. Now, the sad truth is, is that sometimes you can be in situations where you are knowledgeable and maybe you merit trust. But if you can't present yourself in ways that convey those to the audience, the reality doesn't matter. Right? So you might think, well, this is, the, this is just terrible news. But I think it isn't. I think the news is there are really systematic features to how people choose whom to believe. There is a large scientific literature that establishes a bunch of bases of these. It is something you could know about. There are, there are widely uh, published and accessible books you could read about. But most people think, well, I don't, know, I don't need to know that because I'm great at persuasion. Right? But as I've indicated at the beginning, maybe you're just selecting cases where you were uh, successful at persuasion and not thinking about the bigger picture where all of us are probably not. Thinking about under what conditions will someone believe me is important, and you just can't, can't take for granted that they will. So that's really the conclusion. Um, many experts and advocates just overestimate their persuasive powers. It's not because they have bad intentions. They can have great intentions, right? But what that means is if you, good intentions aren't enough, you have to have decent execution. You have to have a decent understanding of what people are doing. So that someone maybe should, would be better off believing what you say, um, doesn't mean that they will. People often confound information transmission and confidence transmission. I can provide information. I can send out 30,000 mailings. I can put up a website just as easily as anybody. But if what I care about is, is that a good investment of my time, right, I need to think a little bit about why would they tune into my website as opposed to the four billion other websites that are available to them. You know, uh, if I have a target audience, why will they pay attention to me? Information transmission, trivial. Anybody can do that. Trying to get people to think, to give them new beliefs and skills, that's a different idea altogether, right? You can try and do it on your own. Some people are successful. Or you can get some help. And there, there's, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a field of research that will tell you a lot about how to do it. Won't guarantee success, 
but it'll help you avoid a lot of mistakes that people just regularly make. And I think the last thing I'd like to leave you with is, again, coming to an audience. Uh, sometimes, particularly in climate change, we think, all right, but still it's their fault, right? Even if I present it, they're not going to pay attention to it. Still it's their fault, right? Because they're not, the, you know, why aren't they paying more attention to me? The thing you have to remember about people's current beliefs, whatever they are, is it's not as if um, any new belief can come in and replace their existing belief. The belief that they have when you encounter them is like the heavyweight champ. It has defeated throughout their lifetimes, or at least in the, in the immediate past, other beliefs that they could have had. Given their world experience, given what they can see, it's beaten off all the other defenders. So, so that means, for them, it kind of works, whatever their belief is. To get their attention, somehow you have to demonstrate to them that their current belief doesn't work in a way that affects them. Right? It doesn't work in a way that affects them. How do you do that? I think you, you, you take down the level of abstraction. You make things real, you make them close, you make them personal. Right? That's, that's kind of simple advice in a way, but you're, in a, you're always in a constant battle of attention. The bottleneck doesn't change just because you have good ideas. The bottleneck is always a, a small number of chunks, and the competition for attention is ongoing. In the internet change, it's just apparent. But in fact, even when people aren't surfing the web, there are all different kinds of things they can, talk, they can think about. Right? For you to win that battle, right, for you to win the battle of attention, it's important to think about how they're, how they're viewing things and what their capabilities are. You can succeed, but it takes a little bit of thought. Thanks, Arthur. So thanks very much for coming, and uh, I appreciate uh, I think something Skip uh, had kind of an answer to a question that's puzzled me for a long time, which is that I've been working, intermittently working the climate beat since the uh, late 1970s. And, and, and the case I want to make, so the puzzle is, why is there so little science applied to the communication of this, this, kind, of, this kind of science? And in some sense, you can listen to a talk by a social scientist like Skipper myself and say, yeah, I can do that. But, but maybe the message is also, don't try this at home. That actually these, these sciences are in ways, in some ways, as complicated as the sciences that, the, that some, of you, some of you practice. And if you don't do it systematically, if you don't collect data, if you don't test hypotheses, just hearing the research results could just get you into more trouble. Because then you will have tried what the psychologist said, or the political scientists or the sociologists, and it didn't work. And that convinced your audience is even dumber than you thought before. My daughter, who's at uh, Michigan, who works on these areas at Michigan State, sent me something last week from the director of research, a very large environmental organization, who said, well, the consensus seems to be among the environmental group is that the foot in the door technique works. And they had read, you know, some of Bob Cialdini's work, and, and he said, is that true? And, and we had, uh, in the, what, in, you know, my daughter and I had what we call in the, what we would say in the vernacular, a gavalt uh, reaction. And it says, you know, thinking that people are that complicated, that simple, just dooms you to failure. It absolves you of any responsibility for, for evaluating your techniques, for seeing, what, you know, seeing where things go right, 
or where they go wrong, and it legitimates doing whatever it is you really wanted to do anyways, because anything could get you a foot in the door. You know, whether it's trying to convince people to do something that isn't supported by the science, something that will exhaust their, that will undermine their trust, that will exhaust their, exhaust their commitment. You can do anything, because it's a foot in the door. So I think, so there's some sense, you know, each of us goes on our lives, we have some opportunities to communicate and let's use them, use them well, but there's really a, a co large collective failure in the scientific community for, for not doing science about this specific area. We've got building blocks, we kind of, we have some theories, we know how to measure things and so on. You know, and what do we have? We have John Krosnick's, the surveys that John Krosnick has cobbled together over the last, Ten years that have showed that you know ten years ago most people had the message that that, that climate change was uh, change was uh, what was was real. I think at this this uh, tw the first my first interaction there was there was an ill-fated maybe old enough to remember this ill-fated AAAS DOE twenty-year planning process for climate change the plug on which was pulled on uh, January twentieth nineteen eighty one. And it really looked easy. We were we met in the uh, uh, in the Annapolis Hilton. Um, Steve Schneider and Elise Bolding chaired. There was actually a social science group uh, group there. And you, and at that time, the you know, part of a big portion of the research was organized according to the Global Atmospheric Research Program. And there was a bookstore right across the street that had the World According to GARP. In the <laughs> it turned out to be more complicated. So so so. And let me just make one more, one more distinction. One can think of communication as, as trying to persuade people to do something that you think would be good for them or you think would be good for you and convince them that it would be good for them. Or you could do, that's persuasive communication. Or you could view your job as non-persuasive communication. That's, people are gonna make decisions and you'd like them to take proper account of those things that, where you really know what the, what, the, what the deal is. So in our lives, in the lives of the people we'd like to talk to, there are many decisions that affect or depend on processes related to climate change. All right, you could fill in the, uh, the picture on, uh, on all of these. And the choices we make about each of them reflects our beliefs about climate change and our commitment to act on them. However, climate is only a part of each of these choices. So you'd like to have a better insulated home in order to do your bit, but uh, you've got negative equity because the market has crashed or you don't really know which of the vendors to trust or it's a complicated, it's a complicated decision. You'd like to buy greener products, but again, you don't really know who, who to trust. They may not be available in your area. You think that the stuff is inferior now, that if you, if you give market share to stuff that doesn't really work, you know, then that's gonna discourage innovation for better green products. So whatever the decision is, you could really understand the climate, the, the climate bit, but that doesn't necessarily lead to, uh, lead to action. So in order to act effectively, people must understand what their options are. This would be standard decision theory to those who had a course of it at one point. What might happen if they act in different ways? What really matters to them? And how they can create uh, better, better options. So decision sciences, which is uh, what I uh, uh, rep rep represent, offers one way for predicting and facilitating one choices. I think it's a necessary but not a sufficient uh, condition for making, uh, for making progress. Unfortunately, a bit like what, uh, what the, the, the sort of the persuasion science that uh, Skip showed you with the two over, overlap, there's no grand theory. So we find that this is, this is sort of Herb Simon, familiar with him, uh, uh, this is adapted from his take. He says, we find that decision making follows simple principles. However, 
The set of principles is large. Skip maybe gave you 15 or 20 of them. The contextual triggers for these different principles are subtle, and the interactions among them are, are, are complex. So what I thought I would do is to show a few of those principles, a little bit of overlap with the preceding talk, with possible strategies for applying them to climate change, and then talk a little bit at the very end about how one, one might organize to do this, uh, do this right. So principle one, people can consider the return on investment in making decisions. So people can be paralyzed by disinformation. They can't figure out what the facts is. I can't work this problem because I don't know who to, who to trust. People can knowingly ignore big problems. They don't think that worrying about them is going to get them anywhere. They can focus on small problems if it's easy to learn about them. So a, a call that I'll often get for journalists is something's in the news. You know, why are people so worried, worried about it? Well, maybe because it's in the news and it's just what people are talking about and it has, doesn't have anything. You know, they realize it's not important. Or it could be, yeah, you know, now people are talking about Vitorin. I thought about taking Vitorin. I really want to find out what the deal is, 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 about, is about it. I, you know, I'd kind of like to know. So it's often paying attention to whatever comes, you know, shows up is an efficient way to, to learn about it. And people, and we find that people can, and when people, when people that people can dig in if something really matters to them and they feel like there's an opportunity to learn. So if you were a communicator, what would strategies might follow in that? So focus on the few things that really matter to people, and there's no way you're going to figure out what those things are unless you adopt a sort of inside view that, that Skip was talking about, and I think the next two speakers are going to be talking about, as trying to figure out where they're where coming from. Make the decisions seem comprehensible, and then reduce the number of decisions, because each of these decisions takes, uh, takes case, by offering one-time commitment. So there's fascinating work done on how to get people to save by institutionalizing saving rather than making you decide each time you have a paycheck how much to put aside. If you have money set aside automatically, you make one decision, you work it out, you see whether you can live with that amount with the, with the result, re result and reduce cash flow, and then you go from there. So reduce the transaction costs in the economic term, make it easier for people to make the decisions. Create unthinking habits, and then if you can bundle climate with other concerns. So if you had a candidate who, political candidate, who solves your problems about, about you know, some of your problems about, you sort of addressed your concerns about climate, but also addressed your concerns about other issues, well, that would be, that would be an efficient way of, uh, of dealing something uh, about this. You wouldn't have to lobby, have, you know, lobby on each of those climate-related issues. There'd be somebody who'd be representing you and do, doing, uh, doing, doing that. So, way to reduce the transaction cost. Second thing, second principle, people dislike uncertainty. So, there's research showing that people will pay a premium for sure things so they can just put the uncertainties out of their mind. Find also that people are insensitive to differences in the probabilities of things happening. So we'll work very hard, people do probability precipitation forecasts, sweat the details for a 30% to get the distinction between a 30% and a 40% probability of, uh, of measurable, measurable pre pre precipitation. People often tend to be insensitive to these decisions. And if you actually, if you model many decisions, they actually are insensitive to differences that are very important to the scientific community, because that's what we do, and we test our models by being able to make those distinctions. But if you do your sensitivity analysis, it doesn't really, uh, 
Uh, it doesn't really matter. And that, and that finally, the people are sensitive to contractual ambiguities in the sense that you offer me something, say, just do this, it'll be good for the environment. To do this, this will be good, good for you. Well, I don't know if I trust you. I don't know if you can really deliver. I don't, you know, I... So all of those ambiguities make people uncertain what the deal is. They don't want to be a sucker. They don't really want to know what they're buying, and that kind of uncertainty can be paralyzing. So what do you want to do? Uh, show sure benefits. Say, this will reduce your heating bill with a very high probability if you can make that, uh, with, with certainty, if you can make that claim. Show the uncertainties in business as usual. It's not as though we know exactly what's going to happen to the world. We, we, we have to make climate change a certainty. It's the world uh, without making, you know, the world will go on and has its own uncertainties. It's not like we have that choice. This is a gamble. Do we want to take, do we want to take this gamble of taking it seriously or the gamble of not taking it seriously? One of the many gambles in which it's involved. And then to establish a rep reputation for credibility. So you may not know everything, but you're a straight shooter on whatever it is that you do, do know. You reduce that element of, uh, of uncertainty. And again, the previous talk had some thoughts about how do you do that, and the subsequent talks are going to have some thoughts about, the next two talks are have some thoughts about how difficult that is to do in a politicized environment. Third choice, when faced with novel choices, excuse me, people may not know what they want. So those are the situations where so we're scientists and we communicate about the facts, but people are trying to decide how seriously to take this really kind of unprecedented threat to our, our potential threat, uncertain threat to our, our, our environment. This is a big choice with consequences that may extend over generations, over species, over species. So you can learn the facts, but you really may not, the real problem is not knowing what you want to do about them, even if you understood the facts, facts precisely. Those are the situations where people are uncertain, where you get the kind of framing effects, where, where people are subject to, subject to manipulation, because they don't really know how to, how to think about it. That people are challenged when they've never experienced a possible, a possible outcome. You know, what would the world be like if these things change? What would the world be like you know, if you were 20 years from now and your kids asked you, what were you doing about climate change way back, uh, way, way back when? It's a little hard to figure out what you're going what, what to be there. And so that's one of the things that make these hard decisions and gives a lot of room for play for the people who are effective at manipulating us. And their people are challenged, finally, when they must choose between dissimilar outcomes. So we're, this is my heating bill versus some endangered species. These are not inherently difficult choices, again, which give room for manipulation. It's not about the facts, it's really about the values. What do we really care about? So what can you do about that? Maybe this is leaking over into the uh, persuasive communication. Focus on deep trumping concerns. If there's certain things that people really matter to them, then address those things because those are stable, they'll know how to process the message. Emphasize what we call commensurable or comparable outcomes. So you can have a discussion about the costs and the benefits of things, and you can have discussions about lives saved, health today for people who will, you know, versus health for people, people elsewhere. So commensurables uh, help people to put some things in, in, in order, and the extent you can provide deep experience where people will say, "Yeah, that resonates with me. I really, un I really un under." Uh, uh, really understand that so that it won't go away with them. So my, my two big kids, 
I've worked on the environment most of my professional career. My two big kids, uh, kids in 36 and 30, are work on the environment. I mentioned my daughter, my son studies uh, zebra decision making, and um, and this is their lives. They're deeply invested in the in, in in the natural world, which is under threat from many other places in addition to climate change. In fact, part of the reason why climate change is so threatening is the natural world is so fragile from other other places. And for me, my commitment to my kids is part of what. Uh, you know, keep, keeps me going. And that's what works for me. Uh, David Keith, who some of you may know, is, uh, was at our place for a while for 10 years, has, had a, has started his talks with a picture of a polar bear. That's what, one of the things that keeps him committed to this, this cause. So these are going to be highly, highly principled. And, and I can only talk from my personal experience. Again, you'll hear from the other speakers about some other things that may work to people. But address what's really important to people. I think one of the things that scientists have is they're out there. They see the nuances of, of nature or the weather or whatever it is they work, work upon. And, and, and it's I think, totally legitimate to most people for you to talk about what really cares to you. And then they can take it or leave it in terms of whether they want to care about it. Principle four, people are good at tracking what they see, but not at detecting automatic biases in the uh, in, in the evidence. There's actually some reason to think that people have a, that counting how often you see things is an automatic process. In fact, most psychologists believe that it's an automatic process. They, di they disagree about what the, uh, uh, what the mechanism is. So people, so people are really good at remembering what they see and at counting things if they're paying attention, but people may not even think that appearances may be, may be deceiving, that the evidence you get is not representative of, the, of what's going on out, out there, because there's complicated processes that, that determine what we get to see. Even if you think, yeah, you know, maybe this isn't, uh, you know, what's being reported on the news isn't representative of what's actually going on, you have to be pretty sophisticated to figure out how to adjust for bias. That's part of our scientific training is learning how to adjust for bias in very specific, specific domains. And as a result, we're often overconfident that we believe that we've seen a, a, a representative sample of the relevant evidence in situations where that's not really the, not really the, uh, the, the case. So what do you do? Well, it's important to attack biased reporting. If it stays out there unattacked, un, un then you know why nobody's attacked it. I guess it's true. Hard to get through with your attacks, but but it's a reasonable inference. If I've seen something, I'm watching the news that something hasn't been challenged. Well, maybe it's okay. Want to provide better information if you can get your story out, you know, and explaining why people dis, you know, why people disagree. You don't want this. You know, it's one thing this is about kind of the whole Monty Python spit of tis, tism. Remember, you know, give people some notion of why it is that, that, uh, that, there's, that there's a di disagreement. And it's really important to address the, the more insidious effects of disinformation. One of the things that happens, what are the, sort of the natural information processing mechanism, you hear things and you try to make sense of them. So even if you later hear a rebuttal, you know, the judge overrules and say that evidence was inadmissible, you can't consider it in making your deliberations, you've thought that evidence has changed your way, way, of, way of thinking. So you need not just a challenge, but kind of an unraveling of the effects of, uh, of disinformation and an installation of sort of elaboration of people's mental models so they understand it in, in, a, in a better way. Fifth principle, transient emotions can affect perceptions, perhaps enough to tip, to tip uh, close decisions. So the science of, emo of emotions is really at a growth spurt for the last 20, 20 years or so. Here's one little slice, little slice of it. So anger, um, anger is mobilizing. 
think about this is one of those places where I think the evolutionary psychologists are onto something. Think about anger is mobilizing. Anger focuses on tension on people, not situations as the source of a problem. So you're really mad, and I'm really mad, and you're my problem, not the complicated situation that brought you to where you were and constrained your behavior and so on. And anger makes people optimistic. Not an enormous effect, but there's, you know, if my chance of succeeding goes up by 10%, that may be enough to push me over, over the threshold. If you get me angry, I think I can do it. And, uh, and if you do really turn out to be my problem, then, uh, you know, maybe. And we describe cost-benefit analysis as anesthetizing moral feeling. That is to say, that is to say, you think it's about all these numbers, and in the end, you know, maybe I asked the Washington watchers, but I don't know that cost-benefit analyses or risk analyses ever carry the day if you don't have the political will to make something something happen. But there's something that keeps armies of consultants and academics uh, busy, busy doing these. So you could say there's a direct cost of wasting our money on, on you know, fine-tuning analyses that you know, are generally instructive at, uh, at best. But there's worse than that, there's, we're dis there's the opportunity cost of thinking that it's all about these numbers and not about the sort of abiding passions, the things that we really, really care about. So if you've got your, uh, you know, if you've got your eye shades on about a deep moral issue, you've got the wrong, you've evoked the wrong emotions there. Second thing is that emotions, you know, can affect transient decisions. We do a lot of work on adolescent sexualities. You could, might be able to imagine this as, uh, as uh, more relevant there. But even in this domain, you could think that if somebody's going to work your emotions, you better know what you want, what you, what emotions you want to ride. You know, to uh, somebody's going to provoke you at a hearing. You don't want to be the mad, optimistic person, ad hominem, arguing person, but you really want to stay your course. You know what case you want to put together. Some sort of pre-commitment can help. So there are lots of other principles, each of which you could think of different corollaries and ways that you might design programs to, uh, uh, to deal with them. You can just read these in there. I guess the talks are, our talks are going to be posted, posted somewhere. So what do you do about, if you thought this, were, this was useful, you know, a necessary but not sufficient piece of the puzzle, how do you make use of this science? I think it actually, it's, this is a management problem more than an intellectual problem. That is, I think we know how to do this. I think people who do this kind of work know how to work with people from diverse, dis, diverse disciplines. But if it's not managed right, nothing is going to happen. So I think that managing for change, to do the communication science, to give it this right part, you need these four groups. You need domain specialists, it could be climatologists, marine biologists, uh, economists, whoever's relevant to the problem that people are trying to solve. You need decision scientists who will take this uh, fire hose of stuff that the experts will give you and find the few things that really matter to people's decisions in terms of what they themselves value. You need social scientists who will kind of inform the decision analysis by saying, yeah, these are the people, this is what they really care about. Why don't you focus on this? And then we'll, we'll evaluate communication to see whether they're as good as you think. And as Skip said, they're usually not as good as you think. And finally, you need designers. You need the creative people. You need those who can figure out how to synthesize things, how to make them persuasive, how to have them resonate in, in, in people, people's lives. Because so no, if you don't get, you know, if you get the content right, that's good, but a whole lot better if you can make it, uh, make it appeal to people. And then, you all, and then if you're managing this, you want everybody working on their own tasks. So you don't want psychologists 
you know, inventing physics or biology or meteorology. You don't want physicists or legal scholars, this is really popular nowadays, who are pushing their pet theories of citizens' competence by a kind of perhaps a half-hearted reading of, uh, of what, the, of what the, the psychologists have studied. You don't want your communication staff often miscommunicate, spinning the, uh, spinning the facts to some presumed that, you know, you can have public affairs communication, which is about me and getting my message across about my organization, how great we are, how happy we are to serve you. Or we can have public health communication, which is me trying to use our expertise in order to solve your problems. And you don't want your analysts who are, well, in addition to anesthetizing moral feeling, are, uh, are, have embedded lots of value assumptions in their analyses, which inevitably uh, happens. So I end up, I think if you could get the team together, and uh, that, you know, I think there's reasons for optimism. I think that the research shows that, with this complex working hypothesis, that people tend to do sensible things if they get key facts credibly and comprehensibly, if they control themselves and their environment, if they're judged by their own goals, and if they have some minimal decision-making uh, uh, make, making competence. So I think, you know, a think we could communicate effectively, but it would have to change the way that we, uh, that we organized ourselves. Okay, thank you. Uh, it's, it's great to be here, and it's been really interesting to listen to the other panelists, because we, we come from very different backgrounds. We seem to have come to many similar conclusions. And at the outset of my presentation, I want to explain to you why I, in particular, am here talking about communication. So I'm going to start with a little bit of personal narrative, and then I'm going to get into um, some comments that overlap very closely with what you've already heard. Um, as some of you may already know, in the year 2005, I published a book called The Republican War on Science. And at the outset of talks, I like to disclose to my audiences there was no conscious intention here on the part of the illustrator to echo the cover image of another popular book that I heartily endorse. So we really, we really only noticed that happen later. In any event, the book, yes, it was well received and so like an author does. I headed out on the road and I was going to give talks. I was going to try to communicate about this subject matter. And in these early talks, my strategy of communication was outrage. I would unveil a by now familiar litany of abuses, all the different ways in which the Bush administration had interfered with science, climate change, stem cell research, evolution, all these kinds of things. Um, and members of my audience were largely scientists, and they would get increasingly frustrated, and at the end of the talk, all the hands would go up. Um, and they would say, well, you've made me angry, you've made me want to punch a wall. You haven't told me what I can do about this. How can I, how can I help address this problem? And I pretty quickly realized that my instinctual answer to that question, which was, buy the book, was, um, was probably not sufficient. <laughs> So I started thinking about new answers, um, new solutions to what I think I'd identified as a kind of broad science politics society disconnect. And first, obviously, I thought about government reforms. Let's make sure that better scientific information gets to decision makers. Let's restore the Congressional Office of Technology Assessment, which was unfortunately done away with in 1995. And then I said, well, if there's a, a disconnect between the science and the decision making, obviously one key conduit of scientific information is the media, and they're not doing things right. So let's address the role of the media. And I've written really extensively 
on this, the problem of 50-50 balance, or he said, she said, we're clueless coverage that journalists adopt sometimes, not bothering to judge the credibility of different sides, just letting it all wash out if they balance them out evenly. And it's not just how journalists structure their stories, it's the volume of attention they pay to scientific topics is a big issue. I think that's well illustrated by this Pew data from about a year ago when the IPCC summary for policymakers came out. As you can see, um, global warming in that week had 5% of total news coverage, but by the next week, global warming had been knocked out of the top stories by the death of Anna Nicole Smith, the Super Bowl, and the bizarre story of an astronaut love triangle, which you may or may not remember. So this is the way um, the, media, the media works, and that's obviously a problem. The politicians and the media are both a problem. But then the final solution I thought about involved how scientists themselves attempt to communicate through the media to the public. And here's where I've gotten in a bit of controversy, but I think this is a crucial area because from my experience writing on science and politics, I learned, if anything, I learned that there's some rules of how you conduct scientific research that are pretty clear and most people in this room, everyone in this room probably understands them. You've got to go through peer review. You've got to win over a consensus of experts to your position. You have to publish. You have to make your data available. All of these kind of things, they're the rules that govern knowledge creation in science. But the core issue in the Republican war on science wasn't generating knowledge. We already had good knowledge about evolution, for God's sake, yes. Climate change, huge body of information. In all these areas, the knowledge existed already. The problem was translating it to policymakers, to the public, and winning acceptance for it. And this problem of knowledge translation turns out to be, in many ways, much trickier, much more counterintuitive than the problem of how do you generate knowledge in the first place in science. Because to translate it, you got to know something about how people's minds work. you got to know something about how the media works. And both can be tricky and not what you'd expect. Nevertheless, translating scientific knowledge is more critical than ever before going forward, as more and more of political decision making depends upon scientific information. In that context, scientists are not going to be able to stay out of the political process entirely, but to adapt to it, and to use a similar metaphor from the one that we already heard from Dr. Lupia, scientists are going to have to learn that when they get into the political context, they're playing a different game. The rules change. Um, so let's say that if scientists, if you'll permit an analogy, when scientists are debating a subject in the peer-reviewed literature, okay, they can fight a little bit, but there are rules that govern this type of combat, and let's say they're analogous to boxing rules. You can punch but you can only punch above the belt. Well, now let's suppose that things start getting political. Interest groups on different sides of the aisle get interested in this scientific issue, and they start taking the information from the literature and putting it in different contexts, selectively citing it in a way that humors their own political predilections. Well, at that point, the rules shift, and you might get a kick now and again. Then let's further presuppose, this is what happened with the hurricane global warming issue that I uh, wrote my second book about. Let's suppose that this subject is not only political, but it becomes a subject of a media feeding frenzy of the sort that occurred following Hurricane Katrina. At that point, this is something Bill O'Reilly is shouting about, okay? At that, Rush Limbaugh is shouting about it, everybody's shouting about it. At that point, there really are no rules and it becomes ultimate fighting. Um, scientists need to, need to learn how these transitions work. So at this point in my own intellectual journey, I was fortunate to have a colleague dating back to my very first internship out of college, uh, Matthew Nisbet. I'd gone on to become a journalist. He'd gone on to become a social scientist. He got his PhD in communication, and he's at American University currently. He's not here with us today. But his work studies um, how the public makes up its mind about political controversies, and there's many decades of social science research on this, and then applies it to how the public makes up its mind on scientific controversies, assuming that they're not really going to be that different, and I think that they really are not. I became familiar with Matt's work. This, um, I thought it was very helpful and offered some potential solutions to this broad science, politics, society disconnect that was troubling me. 
And that led to our joint April 6th publication in Science, a policy forum article entitled Framing Science. And it also led us to give many talks on the subject together. Now let me just summarize the way Matt lays out the Framing Science idea. He starts out by challenging some core assumptions about what makes for good science communication. And in particular, he debunks something that he calls the popular science model of communication. I think everyone will be familiar with this. Let me define it before we sort of start to debunk it. Um, the assumption of the popular science model is that if only the public knew more about the technical side of science, then people would be more inclined to view these issues in the way scientists do and controversies would lessen. Uh, and so what are the strategies? You want good science education in the schools, of course, but you also want science coming through the media in some sort of way, and particularly you want popular science outlets. Science Magazine, Seed, Scientific American, Discover, um, other kinds of media, PBS Nova, and so forth and so on. Uh, and, 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 and the icon of, of probably the popular science model is someone like Carl Sagan, a scientist communicating through the mass media about science. Alas, this probably isn't going to be good enough for a number of reasons. First the problem with the popular science model is it ignores how people tend to make up their minds about complicated subjects. And essentially, they tend to make up their minds in the absence of knowledge, not by learning all the facts. This is something that political strategists have long known. And it might have something to do with uh, the strategy for getting George W. Bush elected. They emphasized his character. They did not emphasize the substance of his policies. The Kerry campaign did that more in 2004. And it may well have been to, your detriment, to their detriment when trying to go up against this central message about Bush's character. If he doesn't live your life, share your values, or someone you'd want to have beer with, then he shouldn't be your president. Um, and how do people make up their minds if they, don't, if they aren't really deeply informed about the issues? Well, they rely upon their social backgrounds, their identities, and they also use easily interpretable shortcuts. So again, something like Bush's character is much easier for them to understand than the aspects of his tax cut policy. That's the first problem with the popular science model, is that people don't inform themselves about all of the facts when they make up their minds, although the popular science model seems to assume that they would. The second problem is that this model also runs aground when confronted with the fragmented nature of the modern media. In 1985, uh, it turns out that if you were watching television at 6 o'clock, you probably had only four choices uh, available in terms of what to watch. And all of these, diff these channels would have given you some kind of public affairs content, some kind of serious news that would help you be a better citizen, or at least hopefully. Well, that's not the case today. If you sit down to watch television at the same time, you have the option of having more than 300 cable channels. And what this means, and what this really, the challenge this poses for the popular science model, is that people have the option, and they will avail themselves of it, of completely selecting out of public affairs information or scientific information entirely. They can watch sports, they can watch entertainment, infotainment, or they can watch news, but they can get an ideological slant on the news and never get a more balanced take. And so they can just watch something like Fox. And of course, there's left-wing news as well. There's right-wing news out there. There's a huge fragmentation. So people are not necessarily going to even be getting the kind of information you want in the first place. The popular science publications, maybe they reach a million people. America is 280 million. It just doesn't really scale. So how do you reach a public that is getting information in this way? Well, this is where we make the framing proposal. And, and Nisbet means something different about, about framing than Lakoff does. And I want to get into the niceties of that. Um, but the idea is this is how you reach this public. They're cognitive misers. They make up their minds in the absence of complete information. They're saturated with information. You pare down the complexity of a scientific issue. And scientific issues are always complex. They have many facets. And you hone in on one or a few at most, usually one particular dimension of it, to the exclusion of others. You selectively shape the issue, highlighting one part. Um, 
Then you communicate in shorthand by a catchphrase, a slogan, these are frame devices, a historical reference, a cartoon, something that's broadly understood. And you have to understand that when you frame an issue, um, different frames will resonate for different publics depending upon which part of the issue you highlight. So let's look at how this plays out in climate change very briefly. Um, the issue has been strategically framed um, by political conservatives, Republicans, in two ways. One of the frames is scientific uncertainty. That's the one I'll focus on. Another is economic competitiveness. There are many aspects of the climate issue. One is the uncertainty of the science. But here is Frank Luntz, a Republican strategist, telling Republicans um, to highlight uncertainty and to frame it in that way. As Luntz puts it, the scientific debate remains open. Voters believe there's no consensus about global warming within the community. Therefore, you need to continue to make the lack of certainty a primary issue in the debate. You could talk about many other aspects of it, but they want to talk about uncertainty selectively. This is a framing device, and it's been one that's been used to great effect. And um, spokespeople who agree with this perspective, like James Inhofe, George Will, that's, that's the point they keep coming back to, uncertainty, selectively defining the issue in terms of uncertainty. If you're a scientist, how do you respond to this? Your instinct tends to be, well, I know about the science, so yes, there's some uncertainty, but there's also some things we know. And so you start to get into the technical details. This is a trap because you're talking to audiences for whom the technical details don't have a lot of meaning, their eyes may glaze over. Moreover, if it's in a media context, there may be a point-counterpoint where they're saying uncertainty, you're saying, no, not quite as uncertain as you think. They're saying, no, lots of uncertainty. People just get, the, get, a, get an image of disagreement, and it doesn't help them um, perceive certainty. So rather than arguing over the facts, you might try a different strategy that's targeted to resonate with the values of a particular audience. One great one is reframe global warming as a matter of religious morality. Doesn't work for me personally, but it works for evangelicals. We know this. You don't refute the claims about scientific uncertainty. You recast the issue as the Evangelical Climate Initiative has done, saying as evangelicals, we believe we're called to be stewards of God's creation, and that's why we care. You get out of this often sterile debate over the facts, and you start to talk about global warming in a way that appeals to the audience's values, and you can shortcut the whole uncertainty frame and get out of the trap. Uh, now, I could give many other examples of how this works, but for now, suffice it to say that on issue after issue, um, from evolution to climate change to stem cell research, there's a complicated frame game playing itself out with with very dynamic and, and sophisticated effects between media coverage, public opinion, and political success of the people engaged in the frame game. The trouble is that for too long, too many scientists have sat on the sidelines and kind of watched the frame game play out. Rather than attempting to engage in the frame game and master it, they've kind of assumed that at the end of the day, the best information will sort of win out. Uh, I think the results of that strategy have been dismal. Uh, but now I want to resume my personal narrative for a minute, um, because I, I made this framing argument with Matt Nisbet, and he's the PhD, I'm the journalist and popularizer of the idea. Uh, I thought it was important. I thought it could have an impact. I think it may be beginning to. Uh, it certainly had some influence. It's been discussed a lot in the blogosphere and other places. Uh, meanwhile, I moved on to another project that I think had remarkably similar lessons in the end, as we'll see. And combining together those two lessons has led me to some still broader conclusions. And that's where I'll end. So let me tell you about the new initiative. You may have noticed we have an election coming. Um, in all likelihood, the next president, whoever it is, will make many crucial decisions pertaining to science, not just how much money will science receive, but how will we resolve global warming? What will our stem cell policy be, our cloning policy? Will we geoengineer? Will we militarize space? And, and, and that's just beginning to describe the many issues. Some of them we can't even probably imagine yet what they will be. And yet science is barely being discussed on the campaign trail. Have you noticed this? It's hardly coming up. Um, 
this, this bothers me. It bothers uh, some people I'm, I'm friends with. So a number of us got together and created an initiative called Science Debate 2008, a public call for a, a debate to occur between the candidates on matters of science policy. Uh, this was an initiative that was launched on the internet and actually with blogs rather than through the so-called mainstream media. There was very little coverage of it at first. Here I am announcing it on my blog and we formed a blogger coalition. To support this, suddenly all the science world was chattering about it and names started coming in. We've signed up all these Nobel laureates. I'm proud to announce that today the American Association for the Advancement of Science announced that it's going to co-sponsor the push to have a science debate 2008. So this has become something. That, that all of science, almost, and, and we're getting more names and sometimes more institutions every week, uh, is getting behind. And it's something that, that began on the internet without any mainstream media coverage at all. In other words, we attempted to use the new media to advance the cause of science policy, um, rather than dealing with the problematic old media. Um, and, and it worked. Um, and we mobilized the base in that way. And this leads me to two lessons. One of them is, um, this is the first positive lesson. Um, Using blogs can provide a great opportunity to get around problems with the fragmented media system uh, and to mobilize your base if you know how to use them. Uh, this is positive. There's, there's benefits as well as costs to the way that the media has diversified and fragmented over the past couple, couple decades. But there's also a more negative lesson here, and here's where I want to emphasize. Science Debate 2008, this initiative, is one of the most invigorating and inspiring things I have ever worked on. But at the same time, sometimes I ask myself, you know, what is up with the big institutions of science such that they didn't use their incredible resources many years ago to make this kind of thing happen and to make it a regular fixture of, of the campaign season? Why instead, and I'm glad they're joining on now, don't get me wrong, but what it required was not the leaders of science, but rather a couple bloggers, a couple of screenwriters, as I'll explain to you, and a few others who are operating on a budget of zero dollars and using the web spit and sealing wax as their tools to make this, this thing happen. Um, one of the most fascinating aspects of the Science Debate 2008 initiative is that the original idea came from a Hollywood screenwriter, Matthew Chapman, who happens to be a descendant of Charles Darwin. He worked on Runaway Jury. And one of our top organizers, who's actually doing most of the day-to-day -day stuff now, is also a screenwriter. His name is Sean Lawrence Otto, and he worked on House of Sand and Fog. And so I, I can't help thinking, if the writers in Hollywood hadn't gone on strike, leaving these guys unable to work, way too much time on their hands, this Science Debate 2008 thing might have never gotten off the ground. That's how kind of out of left field it was um, for, for the world of mainstream science, although now mainstream science is joining on, which is great. But to my mind, it's a huge problem that there isn't a basic instinct to do this, and it wasn't done a long time ago. And so what I want to ask you is, why does American science need out-of-work screenwriters to tell it how to connect to society and how to intersect with the political process? To my mind, that's very similar to asking the question, why does American science need scholars of communication, um, someone like Nisbet or someone like uh, the other folks you've heard today, to tell it what should have already been obvious, which is that attempts to communicate science to the public aren't working, haven't been working for decades, they need to be systematically rethought, and that needs to happen through a systematic understanding of how the media works and a scientific appreciation of how people make up their minds about complex subjects. What I guess I'm saying is that in the final analysis, Science Debate 2008 on the one hand, and this idea of framing science and the push to tell scientists to frame science that I've been behind, have something very fundamental in common. And that is their what I would call intersection endeavors. And what I mean by that is it's an endeavor in which people who care a lot about science but who aren't necessarily hard research scientists find some new way of making science relevant to non-scientists, making science resonate, and helping it reconnect with our broader society. And when I say, um, Sorry, I'm, sk I'm skipping that. When I say intersection endeavors, I say, I, what I mean is um, let's picture science going along on the main road 
uh, and many scientists don't want to deviate off it, but there are all these places where there might be a cross, there might be a collision, there might be a connection, you know, this politics is, is bisecting, okay, and Hollywood is coming in at an angle. And if we can learn to exploit these intersections, uh, then we'll do a much better job of helping science connect to everyone else. I think intersection endeavors are often successful for a number of reasons. One, because they're non-traditional and interdisciplinary. Um, two, because they're media and pop culture savvy. And three, because science on its own, in its current incarnation, really can only do so much. There are too many factors that keep the average scientist with his or her nose to the grindstone and make it very difficult for him or her to master knowledge in another area, whether it's knowledge about politics, knowledge about communication, knowledge about the arts, law, business, whatever. So the upshot is that in addition to its very important, very valuable research component, Science desperately needs to invest in and create a kind of regiment of ambassadors, intersection personalities, you might call them, combinatorial thinkers, who can help science relate to broader society by drawing upon different kinds of expertise. The idea is to generate as many kinds of collisions, as many, um, the intellectual equivalent of 18-car pileups, if you will. Um, and there's another way of making this point, and that is to say that, unfortunately, I think that the famous problem of the two cultures, described by C.P. Snow in his lecture, 1959, uh, it still obtains. Snow, uh, Snow famously said that scientists on the one hand and literary intellectuals on the other are separated by a gulf of mutual incomprehension. They don't understand each other, they don't even talk to each other, and perhaps they can't on some level. Uh, I think Snow was right, I think he's still right, and I think it's in fact even worse than he said, um, because not only does science remain pretty much in most ways alienated from the humanities and the exceptions to that kind of prove the rule. Um, but science is really divorced in many ways and builds up walls between, or walls are built up between it and the rest of society as a whole. And to get back, science not only needs to interact more with humanities and the arts and Hollywood, but it also needs to interact with politics, with popular culture, with communication specialists, um, with everything, with literally everything. Um, to be sure, there were claims about a decade ago uh, that a so-called third culture had come along and helped solve this problem. And um, the third culture was supposed to comprise people like Steven Pinker, E.O. Wilson, Stephen Jay Gould, Richard Dawkins, I've got Daniel Dennett pictured here. Essentially, people who sold a lot of popular books about science to the public. Uh, the, the trouble is, the third culture was very much falling prey to this same problem um, with the popular science model. You know, you sell a million books, which most of these people don't do, because that's a huge number for publishing, but maybe they hit it a couple times. That's still, you know, America's 280 million. The people who are buying your million books tend to be science enthusiasts or, who are inclined to believe with you anyway. To communicate with the broader public, you really have to do a lot more. Um, there were a couple other problems with the third culture that I'll just mention briefly. Uh, there was a tone of superiority to some of the writings. In other words, a science is superior approach. I think E.O. Wilson's book, Consilience, which argued that arts, humanities, all of the other disciplines would eventually reduce to the sciences and that science would be the super uh, way, of, way of understanding everything, was one example of science, you know, sort of thinking that it was going to run everything. Uh, and the, another problem was that a lot of these um, so-called third culture thinkers, one of the things they did was, uh, you know, not only attack ignorance, but in some ways belittle the religious beliefs of the American public. Richard Dawkins is probably the most prominent. And this is, again, it's just a great way of alienating your audience in this country. Um, and so I, I sometimes fear that rather than third culture, what we were actually talking about was something more like nerd culture, where you've got the scientist sitting at the table by himself. Nobody wants to talk to him. <laughs> I, I'm not the, the first to recognize the failure of this third culture concept, and, and I'll end on this point. Recently, a, a writer named Jonah Lehrer did a clever little book called Proust 
was a neuroscientist. It's a classic intersection work. It's crashing art and science together, finding their many overlaps, finding that you know, you know, Walt Whitman uh, anticipated some ideas in neuroscience. Uh, and, and at the end of the book, Lehrer ends by saying, you know, not only does he think the third culture intellectuals are antagonistic to other disciplines, but he says we need a fourth culture. It should be much closer to Snow's original definition. It will ignore arbitrary intellectual boundaries, seeking instead to blur the lines that separate. It will freely transplant knowledge between sciences and the humanities, to which I say, great idea, bad name. This isn't Sesame Street, you know, we don't need to new, learn a new number every, every week, and we don't need a second culture, third culture, fourth, fifth. I, I think that the intersection concept is maybe a little better. Um, what we need, it's bigger than Lehrer says, it's not just bringing science back into connection with the arts and humanities, it's bringing science back together with all other walks of life, all other types of talent, all other kinds of expertise, and the sooner we get those kinds of intersections hopping, the better it will be for science and for all of us who care about it, and moreover, the sooner science invests in creating more intersections, and the only way it can do that, of course, is going to be by changing the nature of science education, then the better off science will be. Thank you. My name is Molly Bentley, and I'm a regular contributor to BBC Science, Radio and Science Nature Online. And I am an American, and I'm based here, so if you're wondering why there's no accent, that's the reason. Now, the first international polar year was from 1882 to 1883, and it was a collaborative effort to understand fundamental questions of meteorology and geophysics. Well, we're now in the fourth international polar year, which is organized by the International Council for Science and the World Meteorological Organization. And during this time, many scientists will be asked to explain their IPY research to a reporter or to the general public. And I'll suggest ways in which you can do that for the scientists in the room during IPY in particular, but the suggestions apply to how you convey scientific research in general. For scientists who work in the polar regions, Antarctica and the Arctic are a second home the icy landscapes, the chilly temperatures, and the scientific questions that compel them to travel to the ends of the earth are all familiar. Even those in the public whom have never visited these icy places can still appreciate their beauty and their role in the planet's climate system. But for the rest of the public, the Antarctic and the Arctic are faraway places, beautiful and exotic in photographs, but otherwise unreal. They're a block of ice somewhere on the end of the earth. The challenge during IPY is to get the public to care about that block of ice. But to reach the public also often means talking to a journalist. And this isn't always easy. As a scientist, maybe you've had a bad experience with the press, your work was misrepresented, or perhaps you're just uncertain how to interact with what seems like an alien species. But journalists and scientists can work this out because ultimately we're on the same side. We're both trying to communicate to the public. And while there may be a communication gap between reporters and scientists, the communication gulf is much wider between science, scientists and journalists, us, and the public. And it's the public that you're trying to reach. This is your audience. So I'd like to give you some things to keep in mind while discussing IPY with the journalist, in particular tips for talking to a radio reporter. But much of this applies to talking to reporters in general. But with the growing popularity of podcasting, 
chances are that even the print reporters that you talk to will want to make an audio recording. And I interviewed a neuroscientist recently for the BBC World Service. Now this audience is 30 million English speakers and 163 million total. And he said excitedly, but will it be podcast? <laughs> With the limited science coverage these days, the reporter covering your story may not have a science background, and most reporters are willing to do their homework. But we may be entering the subject as a beginner. And this was the case for me. I was working on a story of the sea urchin genome, and I had to learn about regulatory genes. These are those that turn other genes on and off. And the scientist I interviewed, he gave me a book that he wrote on regulatory genes in an effort to be helpful, which he assured me would be accessible to the general reader. Here's a typical page from that book. Here's another one. You really need a degree in molecular biology to understand this, and so after a while I just gave up. Although I have to say, I do feel I had seen the images somewhere else before. So the point is that even though you think, well, well, yes, but that's genomics, and that your description of the mechanisms controlling the sensitivity of the Atlantic thermohaline circulation to the parameterization of eddy transports in an ocean GMC is self-explanatory, others may not see it that way. The polar regions can feel as remote as the moon of Jupiter. And I say of Jupiter because anyone can step outside and see our own moon and connect with it, if only in a romantic way. But for much of the public, the Arctic and Antarctica in particular are distant places that they'll never visit. Their relevance to daily life is just not obvious. And the IPY committee has identified a number of themes for framing its research program, which can help you here, from the present environmental status of the polar regions to how they're changing, how polar weather and climate, the air and sea interaction contribute to a global system. And these are the broad themes that can help you frame your research when the public asks, why go to the poles? It's important to explain to the public why these remote places matter to you, but also why they matter to them. For example, researchers use the poles as a vantage point for investigating phenomena such as the sun. But for your audience, it's not obvious why on earth you'd go to the ends of the earth to study a G-type star that's visible from your own backyard. Also, you want to be able to answer the question of why your research matters. What is it about? This is going to be obvious to you, but it can be lost on the public. What is your central question? The question of how biogeochemical cycles are affected by circumpolar climate interactions in the Southern Ocean may be one that burns for you, but it won't for others unless you explain it in accessible terms. Breaking the science down is necessary for the public to, to understand what are even basic concepts. After a public IPY talk in Oakland, California, for example, a scientist showed a graph of global temperatures and he showed how these global temperatures were going up. And when the auditorium was opened up for questions from the audience, a man raised his hand and said earnestly, do you think that this global warming could be contributing to this climate change? And the scientist, who was unflappable, explained the connection. And obviously, such a question at this point in the climate debate is distressing. However, it demonstrates how clear and persistent scientific explanation can help the public make crucial connections. Now, you may not be able to communicate all aspects of your research. In radio, at least, even in a half-hour show, the rule of thumb is your audience may remember only two points. So what should they be? For example, with regard to the drilling into the rock core beneath the Antarctic ice sheet, this is a project known as Andrill. 
One, the Andrill sediment coral cores will take us back further in time than any cores have so far to tell us about the past Antarctic ice sheet. And two, understanding the past Antarctic ice sheet tells us about past sea levels and the past is a prediction for the future. These are the facts about the Andrill project. And you may feel that the, the facts speak for themselves. But research into the communication of science, as you're learning this morning, to the public, communicating science to the public has shown otherwise. People pay attention to science and can absorb the facts when they can make a personal connection to it all, when it represents something that they value. So you may consider framing your research so that it is relevant and meaningful to your audience. One technique is to provide a local angle. How will your research into the Arctic affect people in Quincy, Illinois? It's not obvious. Geologist Kathy Licht explains the consequences of a changing Arctic climate this way. The Earth's climate system is connected from top to bottom, from end to end. We change the poles, we change the weather on the planet. Let people know that the poles are the anti-Vegas. What happens at the poles doesn't stay at the poles. <laughs> Provide a local angle to a reporter. The connection between melting ice and sea level rise is a compelling example, nowhere more so than here in New Orleans, where large portions of the city are below sea level. The flooding robs people more of their land and of their homes. What happens when the salt water contaminates the city's drinking supply? Well, it's a question for New Orleans as well as it is for other coastal cities around the world. But not all IPY work is focused on climate change, and so there may not be an immediate local connection. How do you engage someone in Kentucky about the microbiological communities that thrive in the slush of a winter Arctic lake? Well, the Earth's climate system is dependent on what microbes eat. These invisible bugs make up the bulk of the world's biomass. And one teaspoon of dirt from your garden in Louisville may, con may contain up to a billion microbes. And that's enough to keep you up at night. The Arctic, the top of the world, the polar cap, the North Pole, these all conjure a distant land, cold and barren. But the Arctic is a living place. For animals, birds, and humans, the Arctic is home, as the Antarctic is for the elephant seals that you hear. Creating an image of the Arctic and the Antarctic as a living place helps the public connect with it. And as compelling as photographs are, you can do without them. Share stories about the creatures that many of us will never see in their natural habitat. Biologist Michael Castellini describes rare footage of a mother polar bear repeatedly rearing up on her hind legs and smashing down on the ice beneath. You got to realize this is a 1,200 pound animal. And uh, she was, in, in this particular footage, is standing up on her haunches and then smashing herself down onto the ice. And what she's trying to get to her seals that hide themselves, the seals come to a hole in the ice and then dig basically a cave uh, between the ice and the snow layer above it. So you can actually be out on the Arctic ice and think there's nothing there. And actually there are seals all over the place. They've just hidden themselves underneath the snow and the ice there. And she's trying to smash her way down into a seal hole in order to grab a seal. And the reason she's doing that is she has to feed her cubs. And seals are their preferred food. And so she was trying to catch a seal to feed her cubs. These are the largest predators on the planet. And uh, it's an incredible, incredible thing to see. And they're all perfectly white, obviously except for their nose. And they are such good hunters 
that when they are sort of skulking their way along the ice looking for seals and they are watching a seal and seals watching them, they'll cover their nose with their paw so that their black nose disappears and so the seals can't see the black little black dot moving. It's a great trick. Appeal also to our collective history. The polar regions are an archive of the planet's climate history. The cores extracted from the ocean floor next to the Antarctic ice sheet by the Andrill team, for example, may tell us whether or not the continent was lush and green 20 million years ago. The purpose of the first IPY was to understand the basic processes that drive global meteorological and geophysical phenomena. The quest to understand those dynamics continues today. But the polar regions are also sites of some of humankind's most dramatic endeavors. There's a human history here, from the feats of endurance performed by Scott, Amundsen, and Shackleton, to the pioneering exploration of the IGY scientists in 1957 and 1958, to today's researchers who are foraging a new scientific frontier. The poles hold with them the story of the golden age of exploration and an increasing sure-footedness in a forbidding landscape, along with the growth, step by sometimes leap, in the scientific understanding of our planet. You and your work are part of that scientific legacy. Well, now that I've talked about clarifying the message, here are a few tips on style. Radio is different from print because radio goes by fast, and you have one shot to get the listener's attention while that attention is divided. People eat, they read, and they drive all while listening to the radio, although some of them do that while reading a newspaper too, at least in California. Drawing their attention to science while they're doing that is especially tricky. It's important to avoid technical languaging jargon. Use language that everybody can understand. Don't assume that people know what albedo is, but they do understand how much it reflects. You can substitute temperature control for thermal regulation and not lose one joule in translation. Remember your audience, and this doesn't mean that you have to avoid complex ideas. If you study energy transfer between the trophic species in the Arctic, then you study who eats whom in the food web and how much of whom do they eat. Well-produced radio creates vivid images in the mind's eye. Your work takes you to exciting and exotic places, so describe them to us. Give me an image that I can see while I'm listening to the radio. So let's say I'm in the kitchen and I'm baking a pie, and the radio's on, and I hear you say that you've been coring in the Greenland ice sheet. Okay, I've got the image, but maybe you should say a little bit more. What does an ice core look like? These are kilometers long popsicles. How do you pull them out without breaking them? And what can they tell us? Geoscientist Richard Alley describes how the layers in, in ice cores can take us back years in time. And so we can count years. The thickness of a year tells you how much it snowed. The concentration of dust or pollen or what have you in the ice tells you what was blowing through the air. And as the snow turned to ice, it trapped little bubbles, and those are bottles of old air that are just sitting there. So if you actually want to know what was the composition of the atmosphere, it's there too. Also, don't leave out the day-to-day -day stories of survival. What's it like to work on a block of ice? Share your feeling that you had when you first went to the pole. What do you see when you step onto the deck of an icebreaker? What does it feel like to breathe air that's 70 degrees below zero? People also love stories of hardship, so describe how you once almost fell into a crevasse. Although you probably wouldn't be here then talk about it because those are actually quite deep. 
But even the ordinary is extraordinary for those who have not been where you have, and the Poles are among the few remaining frontiers. And I asked my father, Charles Bentley, who went to the Antarctic during IGY 50 years ago, where did you sleep? During the summertime, the team was about six people, and we lived in three snowcats, which are over-snow vehicles. You lived in the vehicles? Yeah, we had some benches built inside that we used both for our instruments and to spread out our sleeping bags during the, during the nighttime. So is it like living in a tank, something like that? Well, yeah, I guess I've never lived in a tank, so I don't really, I can't make that analogy. But um, they were big enough so that you could stretch out full length. It wasn't like living curled up in a ball. Do you lose your sense of direction when you're in Antarctica and you just see a white plane in, in every direction? Do you ever sometimes wonder which way is up? Well, when the sun isn't out, or whether there's some mist or fog, uh, one can lose all sense of which way is up and which way is down, except what gravity tells you. It's just like being in a bottle of milk. Everything is white in all directions. And uh, I remember one time seeing what I thought was a 55-gallon drum off a ways, and I walked over to it. And when I got a little closer, I saw it wasn't a 55-gallon drum at all. It was a, a small tin can. And I hadn't been able to tell the difference because I didn't have any sense of where the horizon was. What sort of person does go to Antarctica? Because I would assume that it takes a certain amount of stamina to deal with the conditions there, the isolation, um, the cold temperature. Well, I suppose being somewhat of a stoic helps. Are you a stoic? I think so. Liking cold weather certainly helps. But I think what was most sustaining for me was my interest in, in the science that I was doing because there were some very remarkable findings that we had, in particular that the, uh, that the ice was so thick, we were actually on a, what would have been an ocean before the ice sheet formed. You're a witness to an extraordinary environment, so take your audience there. With ice sheets the size of the United States and ice cores millions of years old, scientists working at the polar regions are dealing with scales in time and space that the public can't relate to. Analogies to something they're familiar with help convey difficult concepts by creating a picture in the mind's eye. So here are some you can choose from. As we walk across the ice sheet that drapes Greenland like a cloak and pull out ice cores, our time machines to the past, we find that the Earth's atmosphere is heating up like a hen in a wool blanket and that the salt water, which sinks to the bottom like sugar in your coffee cup and drives its currents, is being diluted faster than good whiskey in a cheap bar a process that may halt the thermohaline circulation as sure as jamming a fork into the conveyor belt at a grocery store. The idea is to create a vivid image that stays with people, and that leads me to, radio captures the great oral tradition of storytelling, and every scientific discovery has a story behind it. Share the narrative story of your research as well as your set of data. Describe how one question led to another, led to an experiment, led to results and discovery, and include the human elements, the inspiration, the curiosity, the tedium, the frustration, and the delight that you felt at unraveling a scientific mystery. And finally, be yourself and enjoy yourself. Don't give a lecture and let your personality come through. On radio, your enthusiasm and your energy not only capture a listener's attention, but they're infectious. They allow the audience to feel some of the passion that you have for your work. And don't worry about stumbling because we edit. <laughs> so to summarize, convey to the public the big picture. Why do the polls matter and what can be learned by going there? Certainly say why your research matters. 
Explain what this means to people personally. Describe the poles as a place where animals and where humans live and put your work in the context of history, either of climate history or of the human endeavor. And how you say it is as important as what you say. Don't polylogize with abstruse rhetoric. <laughs> Provide an image that I can hold in my mind. Think like a poet, share the human story, and be yourself. But if I had to give you two things to take away from this, one, tell a human story about your research during IPY, and two, give us a reason to care about it. And don't wait to talk to a reporter to put all of this in practice. As scientists, you should spend more time talking to non-scientists. Practice describing your work without all the technical terms. So my advice is to go to a cocktail party, but in this case, I'd look for an icebreaker and practice talking with ordinary people about your work. Gauge by the reaction and their puzzled looks as to how well you're doing and figure out how to put succinctly why your research during IPY matters. Remember why you got into this field of science. Draw on your enthusiasm for it and convey that to your listeners. Thank you. I'm going to invite all the panelists to come up and open the floor up to questions or exchanges. Um, and I'm going to invite the panel to uh, feel free to uh, ask each other questions and to uh, be involved in that discussion, not only with the audience, but with yourselves as well. So uh, let me start it off by saying, there's a microphone right in the middle. We're being taped, so if you have a question, please come to the microphone and use it. Any questions? Ah. Uh, Chuck Hakarainen, uh, live in Belmont, California. Uh, both Professors Lupia and Professor uh, Fishoff made mention in their slides of terms like appropriate decision, uh, right decision, which to me as a scientist uh, has the, somewhat of a value judgment to them. And I wonder if they would comment about if there's any potential traps for scientists in, in their efforts to communicate in having some pre-judgment as to where they want people to go and should they be also recognizing the fact that there may be multiple different decisions that are appropriate the situation of the individual involved. Yeah, um, my own work isn't about what decisions are correct or incorrect. It's really about um, under what conditions can you get people to listen to things? Under what conditions can you get them to think about things? And under what conditions can you get them to change their actions? Um, and so there, there are things we know about that. Um, in now, there's an audience that finds that interesting, and that's an advocacy audience, and so. You know, they can take these types of things and, and try and think about, well, how do I get people to move in particular ways? But I don't think that this, this type of, the, the social science itself doesn't tell you what decision to make. Uh, it kind of tells you how people think about these types of things. Yeah, and, and I guess my preference is for what I, many things that I rushed through was a, was a, um, 
an emphasis on uh, non-persuasive communication, which I mean, not unpersuasive, not when you try and fail, but to say, you know, I respect that you're making some kind of decision. You may have different values than, than, than me. What can I do to inform your, your decision? You know, and the thing that we all, I think, wrestle with is how do you get inside other people's skin enough that you can be useful to them? So as Molly said, well, talk to people, like the people you might be talking to, and, you know, and you may find what's, what's on them as a, as, a science, as a decision scientist to say, well, one way that one can get a purchase on it is to try to actually to model, you know, get overboard, but to somehow model the decisions that are, people are facing to figure out what are the, 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 the key facts. And that gives you one way to focus it on what people will, uh, will want. And it may be in their best interest as they define it to do something other than what you would like them to do in terms of your own best interest. Um, let me rejoin that question as well um, and ask a question back to you, Chuck. If the science community concluded that we had a serious problem on our hands, that's obviously a value judgment. But would that be within the purvey of science the way you see it? Or would you regard that as a special circumstance? No, um, no I, I am personally very uh, strongly supportive of work to identify whether people recognize there is a problem or not. I start to get a little nervous. Uh, when we say what is the solution to the problem and try to push people toward an individual, a single approach, whether it's emissions control, whether it's uh, driving more SUVs or whatever, as though there is one answer. And I suspect that, in fact, there are multiple answers. And answers may not be even, uh, quote, scientifically correct because people have more than just science they use in making their decisions on how they do things in life. You know, we got millions of smokers in the country and almost everybody would tell you that putting a burning piece of uh, vegetation in your mouth and puffing on it is probably not the wise thing to do. But yeah. people do that and, uh, you know, you have to respect the fact that they do that. Well, thanks for the clarification. And uh, other questions? Hi, Joe Whitty, a local TV forecaster. Uh, thank you all for coming and taking the time, and I'm glad we're taping this so others can see it also. Uh, two questions, one to Art. Do you have a couple books you might recommend? And Chris, I've heard you before, and perhaps you might explain to some of the scientists here um, how, as local scientists, they can engage their local media. Uh, books on, on, I'm sorry, can I call you back? Uh, we talked about a number of things, so books on, Oh, you ended your, your talk, but uh, there are a number of books that are available. Yeah. Um, OK, uh, I think Bob Cialdini's book is sort of the, the book called Influence. Um, okay. It's C-I-A-L-D-I-N-I. -I. It's, right. it's called Influence. That's a book that, that captures a lot of what social science does in terms of influence, in terms of persuasive communication. Um, it, depending on, you know, there are others, too. I mean, um, one of the big questions that, that my talk would leave open is, uh, how do you figure out what people want? How do you figure out what they're willing to believe? Um, in that sense, there's, a, there's two ways you can go. You can guess or you can find out. And in terms of finding out, um, you know, there are options in terms of like running surveys or experiments and things of that nature. And so there are a lot of books on public opinion and sort of how that's measured and what we know about it and things of that nature that could be helpful. One book that I saw Chris had in his presentation was The Reasoning Voter 
by Sam Hopkins, which if you want to get a, a really nice um, accessible, uh, I don't think there is any, I'm not sure there are any four syllable words in that book, um, uh, about you know, what does it voters think about and, and, and what does that mean for political campaigns. It's a fascinating uh, sort of um, a mixture of things that psychologists, sociologists, economists know, but just laid out in terms of practical knowledge. So those are places I'd start. Let me, let me take the other question. Uh, if there's anything that's holding this panel together, it's, it's the argument that there needs to be a, a scientific approach to communication, and uh, that includes a scientific understanding of the mass media and what its various components are doing and where people are getting information from. In that context, if you look at the data, uh, it's quite clear that a lot of people get their information from local media sources rather than national mass media sources, and so science has to have a presence uh, in these contexts, and, and, and the only way to do it successfully is to have um, some institutional way of doing it successfully. In other words, uh, you know, when a story comes up that's relevant, if scientists are just going about their regular research, they're always going to be too busy. There's always going to be something else to do uh, rather than reach out to local television news. If there's some sort of systematic way of engaging with the journalists who are covering the stories and, and getting uh, to have a relationship with them, then you'll be much better off. Um, but it, it also has to be thought about strategically. And then, of course, once you go to do it, a lot of the, the kinds of lessons that we've talked about in terms of communication would apply. Can I give a quick and dirty answer to that, too, just as a, as a journalist? If, if what you're talking about is how do you get the scientists to actually get their stories out, um, one is to talk to your public information officer if you have one at the university. I mean, these are practical tips if that's what you were asking. And the other is to go ahead and, 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 um, and call the journalist yourself. I mean, call the reporter and build up a relationship with your local reporter. So who's your local television news or who's your local radio or um, newspaper person and begin to have a, a conversation with them. And I think that scientists are reluctant or they feel shy about doing that. Let me just take one minute and a prerogative of the moderator license here. Let me ask the panel, um, have the institutions of science failed science in terms of communication? And let me say it in a different way. Have we, or not we, have the institutions of science delivered a lot of lip service with respect to communication and not a lot of substance? Do you want to comment on that? Yes, but the media has also failed science. Has the institutions of media failed science? Yeah, the institutions of media have failed, perhaps worse, um, but, but the institutions of science have not stepped up to the plate either, in my opinion, yeah. If, if I could add, I mean, I, I'm not sure you could say they failed science in, in a longer historical sense because, again, as Chris pointed out, you know, 20 years ago, the number of media outlets was, was quite small and there was public interest programming and so forth. And so I think that a number of at least university press operations um, dealt well in that environment, small number of contacts. I think with this explosion of outlets, it calls for different strategies. And so to the extent you want to point to a failure, it would be these organizations understanding that the world just flipped upside down in terms of communication and trying to adapt to that. And I think that, you know, it, particularly at universities, I mean, I think there are some legacy beliefs about how to do this that aren't serving them well. Well, I work for a, a news outlet that actually is, is privileged in, in terms of how much science we can discuss, because the BBC must have 
maybe 10, eight or 10 programs devoted to science. In some ways, I'm spoiled that way. So in, in, in that area, I would say, no, it's not failing. But I would say maybe where one of the failures is, um, and it's hidden, I think it's a story that has not gone reported, is the disappearance of science um, reporters at newspapers and, in, and um, in radio and throughout the media. And also the science section. I mean, they got rid of it at the um, San Jose Mercury News. People may not know that their science reporter is now gone. She's working for Slack. Um, they've gotten rid of some of the some of the Slack. Yeah. yeah. yeah oh, yeah, and yeah, she's yeah, not yeah. Slack. I wasn't sure if that was a yeah. term that people thought she was slacker. And uh, <laughs> and. Um, and also, you have these reporters that silently were just being let go by their um, by their media media outlets. So you are not getting the kind of science coverage that you used to. And I would say that's one of the big the big failings. And it's it's happened very 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 quietly. And I don't think people are aware of that. Yeah, I, I think that's what I meant. And there have been changes over time. And I'm talking about I, I mean the media today, and especially I mean it's 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 completely profit driven. And so of course the things that it chooses to highlight are not the things that serve uh, public interest goals. And it used to be different. And scientists were used to it being different in a lot of ways. So, uh, so one could think of two institutions of science: one being the academic institutions, and another being the professional organizations. I think the professional organizations have, I was president of the Society for Risk Analysis recently, and, and our society takes no positions on anything because our members would line, the, the society would, would blow apart. And so I think that many societies have some way, have, um, have, have wrestled with, with this because there is no one right, right, right decision. I think one of the results of that, there are two ways you can approach it. One is just is kind of to promote the third culture. Just be, have people talk about the science just as science and let the audience figure out what it, uh, what it means. And the second, which is what the uh, American Psychological Association does, is to try to get scientists to testify as, indiv as individuals, sort of put them in places where they can do whatever interpretation they, they do. So it kind of brokers the, the sort of arrangements that we have. That may be, a, you know, that may be one that, that professional associations you know, might be, could live with. Second issue is, you know, do the universities reward those or punish those scientists who decide to talk to the to the public so even if you weren't afraid to do it you know would you get in trouble would you get credit towards uh, towards promotion if you if you did it so I'm actually proud I'm at Carnegie Mellon I'm part of our institution we have I, I'm in two depart I'm in a we have a department of engineering and public policy which is half of my my appointment all of whose um, uh, members have joined appointments either in the traditional engineering departments or in, so, or in social sciences and we're sort of rewarded on being able to have both a, a, a public policy portfolio and a, and a sort of a natural uh, sort of disciplinary portfolio and the university goes out of its way to bring in journalists once a year to talk about how to report the science. We have a boot camp, we have fellowships for, for science. So I think, we, I think there are some creative ways, but I think it re requires leadership from the university administration to change the incentive scheme so those scientists who would like to do this feel as though they're going to be rewarded and not punished and to, and to facilitate this, uh, this process. Okay, let's pick up the questions. Yeah, I'm a, my name is Brian Allworth, and I'm a, a TV weather guy. I have a graduate degree in atmospheric science from Colorado State, so I've sort of, in a way, my 25-year career has been sort of a personal uh, journey, kind of informally learning exactly what you guys have all been talking about this morning, sort of how to handle that interface between science and 
average nightly news TV audience. But uh, Skip, I, I, I apologize for not knowing your last name or remembering. But I really liked your analogy of people's belief system acting as sort of a prize fighter and fighting off anything new that would make them uncomfortable. And I guess I have a real general question that I've always wondered about is, why is it that people like hearing what they already believe? And that, or the converse, why is it that they're so uncomfortable when you try to give them information that that deviates from their beliefs. Do you, you understand what I'm saying? Why is it that people prefer to watch something that tells them that they, what they already believe and already know, and yet if I try to explain something on the air that, as a concrete example, uh, I, I, I work in a very rural area where people will, will come up with these old uh, weather wisdom sayings that, uh, you know, if it's if there are three, if it's foggy in August, that means we're going to have more snow in December. And if I try to explain that that probably doesn't work, it just makes people angry. So I've learned over the years that you might as well just go. So why is it that people prefer to be reinforced rather than to, uh, I guess you understand what I'm asking. <laughs> yeah, I've always been curious about that. That's a great question. So um, you know, the, some of the earliest psychologists referred to our perception of the world in terms of blooming, buzzing confusion. And is even before the internet and television, anything, the world, there was just so much for us to look at and understand. So a question is, uh, you spent 10 minutes a day thinking about that. You know, would, is that something that would sort of make you feel good? Would that be a good use of your time? We, act, we react pretty quickly to that. We just don't like uncertainty, as, as, as Baruch talked about. We'll do things to avoid it. And so now, to, to get to your question, if, I, if I'm set in my ways and you say, well, there's a couple other pieces of information you might want to consider, unless you can get to the point where I see that, that unless I think about what you're saying, I'm going to get something wrong that makes my happy, content, certain world um, faulty, I'm not going to listen because I'm pretty comfortable about where I am. But that's just a general, that's a general attribute of human nature. It doesn't have to do much with policy. It's if we can find certainty, or if we can construct certainty, uh, it makes us feel good. And I would think with, with our media information overload getting worse and worse, that problem may be getting, ironically, it's almost a vicious Well, people have talked about that, right? I mean, one of, the, one of the consequences of the proliferation of media is that you can select into hearing people with like views. And uh, that's not, you know, uh, your instant reaction might be, well, that's a bad thing because you don't hear other people's points of view. And certainly there are situations where, where that's true. But you can think of other situations where uh, maybe you'll pay attention to people like you and, and through that sort of think about, well, are we really alike and things of that nature. Um, but the, uh, people do like, you know, all else constant, people love certainty. Uh, can, I, can I give a more optimistic, <laughs> uh, complimentary view, which is, I mean, yeah, it is human nature and it applies to all, all of us. But from a cognitive perspective, I think that, that it's, well, uh, the behaviorists will tell us that you can't extinguish one behavior without reinforcing another one. You can't just say, stop doing this, 
because people want to do some, something else. And the trick, and where I think kind of an interdisciplinary team is, you know, is, is needed, is to find a better way to think about the class of phenomena that's captured by the old way of thinking. You could think of this as a paradigm shift at a micro level, or in the technical literature, or give people a mental model of this process so they can think about the weather in a way that's at least as good as the old, old way. So just, you can't just say it's wrong without giving them some, something else, and to figure out that something else is really almost as much a design problem as a scientific one. I just want to say this is a great area for intersections because most of the great, many of the great works of literature are about precisely this, self-delusion, great expectations, middle march, you know. People think in narratives, they don't think in, in isolated technical details. They write themselves a story and then they exclude the information that doesn't fit the narrative because there's so much information uh, that you can't handle it all. And that, that's what writing, the act of writing is itself. Um, excluding things and including things and we all do it and sometimes we leave out the really big important things like your benefactor is really the convict rather than Ms. Havisham and uh oh your whole life is a lie but uh, but that this is why you know literature and science talk about the same things uh, they teach strategies for avoiding self-delusion and if we can make those kind of connections we'll be helping science uh, next question writers. So my question is to you and to the rest of the panelists, given how this is changing, what are some really effective mechanisms to build those relationships with the new science writer who may actually be the sports writer from last week? Or how do we reach media in a way that's effective given this changing system? So how do you, how do you initiate the beginning science writer and how do you engage the, the media? Well, we can do something that you've done for me, which is you invited me to come to Colorado. <laughs> I'm actually based in the Bay Area. So she said, come out and, and why don't I introduce you to, um, to the scientists and, and, show, and I'll show you the research facilities. I don't know if everyone can do that, but actively saying to the science reporter, hey, come and see what it is that we do. Um, is, is a start. Uh, so actually having a conversation with them, call them up, invite them over, talk a little bit about what it is that you do. I, I do believe that for reporters, especially those who aren't science reporters, it'll be very abstract, the work that you're doing, and if they don't have the language um, and the experience in reporting on science, that it's important that they go and see and, and realize that these scientists are actually people and they're humans and they care about what they're doing. Um, science can seem very remote and passionless to people who, who don't cover it. So that would be one beginning, is to really engage um, engage your local reporters. W was there a second part of that, or is that part of the first part? Well, I guess my, my question is, given how things are changing, do you think there are new strategies or new tactics that are better for not dealing, in many cases, with people who have a science degree? I'm going to defer to well, someone else on that. You know, changing media, you know, creates opportunities as well as uh, putting some people out of work, put some people into work. I, for the last five years, I haven't worked for anybody. Uh, that's the way it is now. There are risks and there's also benefits. Nobody can control me. I also don't know always exactly when I'll be paid. But what you have to do is you have to pitch your story to people who aren't necessarily at recognized institutions a lot of the time. Um, because they're cutting back on science writers and because, you know, maybe not everyone's getting information there any, anyway. So clearly anyone who's doing, um, you know, science communication trying to get stories out has to be very blog savvy 
among other things at this point in time. You can create a complete brush fire uh, in, in the blogs if you know how to do it right. And uh, research has shown pretty clearly that mainstream media reads blogs and decides what to write about, you know, stealing stories from them all the time and never attributing it. Um, which is a subject of much consternation to us. Um, so, uh, so you know, now they're starting to cover Science Debate 2008, although first up, you know, who are these scientists thinking they're going to get this to happen? Uh, so, so you gotta, you got to think about what the new media is and then target it. Actually, I, I think we can draw from the past. We, we've done the media transition thing before. So going back, you know, to one of the earlier things, uh, a number of Catholic priests in Europe were very much against the printing of the Bible. The idea being that people would interpret the Bible in different ways and they had to be shepherds of this. But of course, you know, uh, the printing press goes on and people have distribution and, and, so, and, and understandings emerge. What you really need are kind of establishments of norms and mechanisms for accountability. So if you think about the later transitions from like newspapers only to newspapers and radio, if you look at what a lot of the newspaper professionals said about the rise of radio, it was the same thing, right? Where now they're going to be talking, and they can talk about whatever they want, right? But radio turned out not to be that bad, right? You establish norms, you have mechanisms for accountability, and some people establish reputations for credibility. When TV came, the radio guys thought the same thing. And now we're at the internet age, and right, a lot of the established media, the reaction is, oh, it's going to be totally uncontrollable and chaotic. Well, no, if you still, if you can find a way to establish norms, right, and have mechanisms of accountability, you're going to have folks out there that are saying things that you would never say, but you can form pockets, you can have credible people emerge. I mean, the New York Times, for example, didn't begin as credible. It, 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 followed a, it developed a series of practices that made it credible, and the same with every science publication. And so now you have bloggers and so independent journalists who are establishing a reputation in the same way. They're following certain rules. They're, they're, they're making themselves accountable. So, you know, and, and if people really want reliable information, right, they're going to seek those folks out. So we're still sorting it out, and it's early, but we've done the media transition thing before. I just want to add one other thing um, to the, this idea of how you reach people. The other thing that's happening is, you, I don't want to advocate this, but you can cut out the journalist and sort of do an end run, because what, what I'm finding is that a lot of institutions, what they're doing is they're just doing their, their outreach independently. They're doing it, everyone has to be at this point. You have to sort of run to stay in place, which is you have to know about blogging. I have to say, I don't know much about it, so I'm, I'm behind. Um, but you have to know about blogging. You have to know about websites. You have to be so you have to be so sophisticated now with many different kinds of media. So now, um, NCAR and other groups, what they're doing is they're building up their websites to reach the public directly, and you don't necessarily need a journalist. Although I hope that you continue to talk to your your reporters. Don't cut us out. Uh, next question, Walt. Is that mic working? Um, Yep. <laughs> Tom Peterson from NOAA's National Climatic Data Center. Um, one of the key messages I received from you know, your presentations, it's important to get your message out, their information out. And sometimes we're asked to be interviewed by, by reporters that may have a certain slant or bias. And do you have any guidelines on when you should not engage in, in this? Is, are there ever any times when you should be careful about not actually going to an interview? Before we answer that, can you just give an example of the kind of slant that you've come across? Well, this was a, a question. Actually, it's coming up shortly. There was an interview that I was asked to do about uh, a, a point that was somewhat controversial with, uh, with some surface stations. 
And the question is whether the, re they didn't know whether the reporter has a bias or not, but there was some concern and pushback that we should not actually engage in trying to get our message out because of the fear that it could be twisted. And you know, my view was sort of that you can't have control of that, and if you don't get your information out, nobody will. So, but uh, yet there was pushback from other parts of the organization questioning whether we should even venture into this domain. There's, there's, it really depends on the issue. There are some things on which the, the record must be set straight and must be set straight immediately. Um, I, I don't know uh, if this is one of those. Uh, if it is, you gotta, you gotta get it out and you gotta get it out quick. If someone's like going right at your data saying there's something really wrong with it, et cetera, in the press, uh, you have to have a response because that's, that's a certain kind of sort of crisis communication. Uh, if, if, if it's not that, if it's something like a, a opinionated where you know somebody's got an ax to grind and they're coming at you and you know what they're going to write already and, 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 and there's ways of knowing this by knowing what people have written before and knowing what they're known for. Uh, journalists are predictable, uh, some of them are very predictable. Uh, then then I, you know, I, I often refuse to play actually or you send someone in your stead to do it, unless, unless, or, or you feel really courageous, and you're like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have a long, you know, grueling conversation with this person, and just try and try to move them a little bit, but you rarely, really want to do that. I just, I, I encounter this, um, this circumstance a lot. I, I run the American National Election Study, which is funded by the National Science Foundation. It's a large, it's a large study. So I get reporters calling all the time, and and you know, there, there's things they want to talk about that, that can get you in trouble. So I, let me give you a general answer then specific. The general answer is I think there's two types of things reporters can ask a scientist about. One is a technical issue. Uh, did something cause something else? Does something exist? Is something possible? And if you answer those questions right, putting aside for a second what the, what the, the journalist incentives might be, if you answer those questions, there's a limit in how much trouble you can get into. Right? The question is when you move from technical questions to ethical questions, where it's should. Right? Science has a great, some great advantages in terms of technical things. When we move into ethics, it, it gets a little dicier. So, so that's the general matter. What I do, I interview reporters first. Uh, I interview them. What's your story about? You know, uh, what, what, and, and, if, and if they're someone I think I can work with, if there's someone who sort of you know, can answer a couple basic questions, I'll do the interview. If not, I'm busy. And I am, so it's, it's not, but I mean that's, I interview reporters and I, I tell my students and, and my colleagues, we, we talk about this, to do the same. Uh, because we don't know, you know, we, we, when, when someone calls up, you don't know. And uh, I don't, that, that's my advice. Well, also, you, you, this is a fact that you won't always get the story that you want and you can't control it and it's very frustrating and it's frustrating for scientists and I understand that, I really do, because they do get burned like a lot of people do in the media. But I would just encourage you to plow ahead. Unless it's a particular reporter, you've had a bad experience, you know that they're going to distort or slant the story, you could opt out of it. Um, but otherwise, talk to, I assume that the story is going to be in many different outlets and some, pe some reporters will get it right and some people won't get it right and you just ho hope that through the repetition of having the story um, disseminated through various, various outlets that you'll get your story out there. Then if it's not accurate, then I, then I believe that you should call back the reporter or call the editor and, and, and say something about it and then if you realize that this really isn't going to be a working relationship, then, then I think you can opt out of it. But, but what I don't like to hear scientists do is, is start to hold back and say, I don't want to talk to the media, I'm afraid of how they're going to use the information because then the alternative is the science doesn't get out there and then the public is harmed in the long run. 
mean, I suppose each of us has our own own experience. When I talk to reporters, I usually enjoy it. I usually find, you know, they're usually curious, and they, you know, if you can explain it, it's like having another student. Somebody's listening to you talk. So I usually, uh, usually, enjoy it. And what I usually, and each of us are in different areas. What I find is is that people want to make sweeping statements about other people. You know, typically people are idiots. That's usually the call that I get. Tell us, Professor, are people really idiots in this in this area? And, and, and I think sweeping statements, they're rarely true. They demean other people. And I often get left on the cutting room floor because I say the story is more complicated. And uh, so I don't, don't get misquoted. I just don't get quoted at all. So. And just to add one piece to that, I know at least a couple of reporters that will offer their piece to the interviewee the other side of that interview and say did I get the factual substance of this right everything else aside that's not up for grabs and allow you to do that so it varies as well from reporter to reporter but yeah. anyway let's go on to the my experience thing. has been is that the women mag women's magazines have the best fact checker I've been working with the real simple basically a women's magazine on a story about how to do decision making and they're checking everything they want to make certain that I, I get it so you can trust them uh, hi, I'm Peter Boyer. I'm from Eastern Canada. I, uh, I, th this, this session this morning is uh, worth the price of admission for me. Uh, I wish we could spend a week to unpack the things you've talked about. Uh, I'm a national spokesperson. I'm the program manager for the Canadian Hurricane Centre. I understand the difficulty of getting people to shift paradigms because when I introduce myself and I tell them what I do, I, the look on their face is as if I've told them I, I coached the Jamaican bobsled team. <laughs> <laughs> they just, they, the look is priceless and, the, and, and I continue to get that look, so I understand. Um, I, I think the, uh, the, the term that you're looking for, the psychologist referred to it as cognitive dissonance. Every one of you referred to it in one sense or another. What I'd like to ask, and, and also every one of you talked specifically about the issue about understanding where people are coming from. Um, in uh, Stephen Covey's book in 89, uh, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, he made a very good point about drawing the two principles. Seek first to understand, then seek to be understood. Every one of you brought that point out. Um, I've tried to do that when I'm dealing with the media as a spokesperson. One of the things that I've found to be very effective is dealing with people one-on-one. -on -one. And what we have discovered in Environment Canada when dealing with environmental issues, trying to get uh, groups to, to buy on, you can, you can get them to come around to your way of thinking uh, and get them to accept the, the, your beliefs, but their behavior doesn't follow along uh, until you do one more thing, and that is coach or mentor people almost one-on-one. -on -one. And I'm just wondering if any of you, uh, whether it's Dr. Lupia starting with you or any of you want to comment on, on the value of that. The, the, the problem with that, as I see it, and I think most of us will understand, is that's very slow. The dealing with the, the, the multiplier points in the media is great, and I make use of that. But ultimately, when you can deal with people one-on-one, -on -one, it seems to be the most effective. It's just very slow. Any comments? Uh, well, you know, I, I have no objection with anything you've said. I mean, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, if you're looking for a way to capture some of what makes a one-on-one -on -one situation work with other people, I mean, the thing you can do with one-on-one -on -one is you can, you can gain this understanding so that you can um, push buttons or sort of follow up on statements and get them to think. And the, the, the key thing is trying to get someone to think, right? People will listen and people will nod, right? And that's pretty easy. If you're, um, if you're on television and, or you're, you're writing an article, people can just um, pass by what you're saying. 
the question is, can you create, the way that I talk about it is, can you create a moment in your correspondence where you get them to think? And we should be careful about them. Uh, when you're dealing with the mass media, uh, sometimes we think that one size fits all. And it doesn't, and it never has, right? And so um, sometimes you can make a, a broad presentation and you can be unhappy because, you know, so few minds change. But with the kind of audience that you might have, you know, if you get 1% to think about something, you know, and you did it in a half hour or five minutes, you know, you think the yield on that time is pretty good. Um, but I guess the, the main thing would be, is that I, I, talk, talk, I discussed during my talk the idea of creating moments as opposed to giving presentations. If you can create the moment where you're making somebody think, you've opened the door. You know, what happens when people go into it, that's a little harder. You know, the coaching in terms of behavior change, that's a little harder. But if you can get people to think, you know, that's most of the battle. Uh, let me add one tiny piece here, and that is that uh, thank you for coming. Come back next year because we're going to build on this. And as I said, this is a process. We're going to do this again. We're going to keep pulling the layers apart insofar as we can dig in. Next. Oh, if I can add to this, and this isn't really, this is this idea of reaching out, and I don't know why this just came. I'm not even sure if this is an answer to your question, but the idea of reaching people. There's a scientist at Cornell, and he works, he's trying to, um, wrestle with this problem of evolution and trying to get the public to understand. So what he did um, was he just took a box of fossils and he went to the local mall with some of his students and he stopped people and he asked them if they had ever seen a fossil. And many of them had never seen one. And many of them did not believe in evolution. And I can't say that he changed, I don't know how many minds he changed, I don't know. But he said that a number of people stopped and said, I. I'd never seen one, what is this? So this idea of creating a moment, maybe this is joining what, what you said, maybe it's not just talking, but maybe it's the scientist going out in some way. And it struck me that he went to a mall, he went to a shopping mall, because most people <laughs> don't expect to find scientists there. You have to go to a museum or something. So I had this idea, well, maybe you could go with the ice cores or something, of course, you'd have to move really fast, let's say, <laughs> they melt. Hi, I'm Randy Exler. I'm with NOAA Research, communications officer there. My question is, as the landscape is changing, um, I understand framing science differently for different audiences, but do you see the role of the communications officers changing as well? Uh, or do you see us continuing to be the facilitators and the strategists in terms of where to place a story you know, different ways to go after a different media. What's your opinion about our role? In my view, I mean, I think your role hasn't changed, but your strategy has to. Um, you know, uh, the, the idea of writing a press release that a broad audience will see, well, as, as we were talking about before, everybody writes press releases, as you know. I mean, 20 years ago it was rare, now everybody does it. And so how do you, how do you get up above the clutter? Um, I think this idea of building relationships with certain outlets, I mean, I think that's much more important than it used to be because from the, from the side of the, uh, of the journalists, as, as many of you know, it's, it's how, do you, how do you decide what to believe, how do you decide what to pay attention to. But I think the goal is still, if you're trying to get your word out, you just have to understand that, that you know, the assumptions that we all grew up with in terms of how do you get the attention of lots of people, um, that's over. Right? I mean, now it's, it's how do you get, you know, if, if you really want to try and get a lot of people, the question is, how do I target my message to get a bunch of small groups so that together from their own perspectives or interests, they might come to a common understanding? I, I guess I would add, yeah, for, for, um, for you, there's two things. 
One is, yeah, the media is different, so you have to know that. Uh, the second is, I, I think that, um, this is part of my talk, the popular science model has many limitations to it. Uh, too often, you know, there's just pitching of a story that the, the fascination of it in here is in the technical details. Isn't it cool that it works like this? And the problem is the outlets that carry that kind of story largely appeal to a relatively small group of science enthusiasts. And science needs to sometimes reframe its stories to reach totally different communication possibilities. And, 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 and that's, I think, a point that, that endures as well. I'm trying to figure out a diplomatic way to say this. I, I see a lot of, particularly in the federal government, I see a lot of communication officers, offices occupied by people who aren't particular, who are, who are occupying political roles rather than scientific roles. And, um, and I think that, I th term that I think about is you could have either a public affairs stance, which every organization has, somebody needs to defend you, or a public health stance, which is I'm trying to provide things that are useful to, you know, that are relevant to the people that are out there. And, you know, for a science-based organization, you need, you, it needs to actually have both, both of them because everybody's got to defend, them, defend themselves. But somebody's got to worry about the public and getting them what they most, uh, most need, to, uh, need, need to know. So to the extent that you're free to craft your, you know, to design your position in a way that helps the public understand where, where NOAA's research fits into their lives, you know, and not try to spin it at all so much the, the better. I think that's what the public uh, really needs. And in the long run, it's trust in our institute, our scientific institutions is not going to be served by those jobs held, held by public affairs people. They're, they're fighting another battle, perfectly legitimate battle. But if you mix the two, then, then everybody is ill-served, including the organizations in the, long, in the long run, because they're no longer trusted as sources of uh, information. They're just more public. I mean, in some sense, you're losing the meta battle against science because it's just all politics. If I, if I could add to that, I mean, one uh, piece of advice that I give to, to folks in this situation is to be concrete about what the goals are. A lot of times, you'll, you'll be part of a group and you know you have a set of facts and you know you have an, um, information and you want to get it out there, and that's fine. But if there isn't a goal in terms of, well, why do you want it out there and what do you want to accomplish and who do you want to think about it, if you don't know that in advance and if you don't commit to somehow evaluating whether people are getting it or not, then you can get in this sort of self-fulfilling prophecy where, well, we're supplying information and we're getting it out there and we see all the mail go out, we see all the emails going out, so it must be working, right? If, the, if there isn't well-specified goals in advance and I think a commitment to measuring, are these things working as through surveys or, or whatever, you're kind of flying blind. And I see a lot of really you know, well-intentioned folks, well-intentioned organizations thinking, well, you know, we got it out the door and so it must be working. And that's a, that's a tragedy uh, when, you see, when you see that. The great uh, thing let about me, can I add one, one additional deep prejudice that often in, in, that these are social science questions and often in sort of the organizations that don't have social sciences in them can tell the difference between social science and somebody who's hung out a shingle as a communications person and uh, there's no assessment and they're they're doing worse than wasting their 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 money they're often shooting themselves in the foot because really for you know for most consultants or actually sometimes for many advertisers unless they do 
particularly public uh, affairs type advertisers, unless they do rigorous research, you get the contracts by selling yourself to your to the boss, not by selling the boss selling the organization to the to the public. So the standard of practice in the in the federal government today for communications is messaging sessions, where you get a group of people around a table, they decide what the public needs to know, and then you write a big check for somebody to get you know to put that out with nice production production values and it it's a great way to sell your services because you're you've ratified the, the, the wisdom of the people writing the check for you and then they get to see their ill-conceived message you know writ writ large with nice nice production uh, production values so one of the so one of the real traps is that you get it's almost like a developmental stage somebody decides yeah we're going to be serious about communication and they hire some consultants who who you know? Who uh, you know? Who you know? Who set the cause back? I just wanted to add. I definitely support measuring the results of any communication initiative. There's many ways to do that. Uh, the great thing about the new media is that it's very, very measurable. Web traffic is very easily available. You know, links or you know, Google News will find every blog. You know, or Technorati will find every blog that discussed it. It's so so incredibly easy to do, and I've been astonished by. Um, you know, I won't name names, but major foundations, you know, funders being willing to fund web communication projects and never evaluating the web traffic statistics of them and seeing if anyone's actually looking at these things and, 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 and me knowing that nobody's reading this, you know, and it's easily provable empirically and everyone can know it. It's right there on the internet. So am I hearing from everybody that our, some of our institutions at least have not done due diligence on this issue of communication? Maybe they haven't seized an opportunity. Yeah, I mean, this would be, I mean, adding on Chris's point, um, you know, particularly with the web, you know, you know there was a dot-com boom, right, and then there was a bust financially. There's also that in terms of um, getting these types of message out. The, the idea that you'd put a website out, measuring traffic is important, right, can you see when anybody's there. But the difference between eyes on a page and somebody learning something can be very different, right? Um, one of the things I did with the Markle Foundation for the 2000 campaign is we actually evaluated websites by whether people remembered things from them. We actually ran experiments, and this was actually interesting, right, because you'd, you'd do it an experiment, you'd show it to people in your office, I'm sorry, a, a website, you'd show it to people in your, in your office, and everybody would say, great, right? But the problem is, is that people don't experience your website that way. They experience it with every single moment they have an option to go to four billion other sites. And so if you really want to evaluate something like a website, a, a sort of more proper scientific way to do it, is evaluate it in the context where people have choices of, of, of other things to look at. I can tell you, you can take a website that when people see it on its own, they say, oh, this is great. And you say, okay, now here are two websites. Which of these do you like? They can take the same exact website and say, oh, this is horrible. It's slow, the pictures are bad, and so forth. It's the same site on the same day, right? And what you're doing there is you're saying, you're, you're making, you're, you're putting one person in a vacuum and saying, this is the only site you can use, let's see, let's base our evaluation on what they do. Alternatively, you can put them in a more realistic environment, which is they can turn off the channel at any moment, right? That's what your website's competing against. Um, so so there, there are ways to measure that. Next question, please. Hi, my name is Chris Capella. I'm a meteorologist and an editor and a writer for the American Meteorological Society. Um, first, I want to say thank you for all being all of you for being here. I think all of us in this room have learned something new today about how to communicate, how to think about communicating. Um, listening to your presentations, you gave a lot of good ideas and examples of what can be done. 
uh, to better connect with people and to get their message, you get your message across and make it stick. My question to you is, how, for the scientists, how do you change their behavior, change their mindset of the way they present their information, which is to get the information out unframed to people, not spin it in a certain way. They want to get it to the people as they found it, draw their conclusions, and let them decide. What would you say to change their mindset so that they can start framing the way they present this information? I mean, for me, it, it, it's really clear. You have to show them that they're wrong, right? <laughs> so one of the problems is if you don't have a well-specified goal of what your information campaign is trying to do, and you don't commit to measuring it, right, then you can, everybody can live in this fantasy world, well, it's working. And you have no evidence to the contrary, because as people like certainty, right? Your question before, people, if you commit beforehand and say, these are our goals, right, and this is how we're going to measure it, people can see whether it's working or not. And so then you can take the, you can take the unframed version and you can evaluate a hypothesis. Is this presentation making people think, changing their minds, increasing their awareness or not? Right? And then, you can, then the data's right there for you. And then, you know, if, if, the, if the proposition is true that it's working, then the version that, you know, you might not like is fine. But, you know, there is such reticence within communities like this to subject something like this to data because of the overconfidence we talked about before. Well, look, we're, not, we're experts in this field. Obviously, we're the best able to decide how to convey it. And, you know, I wouldn't for a moment question the expertise. But when it comes to conveying it, there's faking it and there's understanding what's going on. I mean, those are, those are, those are kind of distinct choices there. We talked about this over dinner, another aspect of it. Um, uh, you know, in some ways, it's probably rational for many scientists not to be, not to f pay a lot of attention to communication because there aren't a lot of incentives for career advancement uh, if they excel at communication. And so eventually, you, you have to think about some sort of institutionalization of um, reward system for someone who excels at this. I was talking to a scientist at Duke, I'm gonna repeat the story from dinner, uh, a scientist at Duke who's in the genetics um, lab, and, or department, sorry, and I said, how many tenured professors are there? He said, 100, uh, and I said, what if 5%, five of them, um, part of the reason they got tenure was demonstrated ability in communication, just five, and the other 95 were just all research. And that would be a change, that would mean that there would be competition for those positions, and some of the people competing would excel in this. So that, and and you, can, you can extend that kind of logic to funding agencies and what they specify uh, in order to, for a grant to be received and all the rest. And you can extend it to what the curriculum is for students in science and so forth. But these things, I think, have to be institutionalized. Next. Oh, maybe just maybe, um, it strikes me that, you know, so I was thinking is that in my role as a scientist, I, I try, you know, what's, What's a way to do this that's consistent with how I view myself? So I'm happy to talk about my own research. Just ask me. You know, I'm actually happy to talk about what other people think about my research, whether they like it or not. It probably won't get the not as good as you, you know, as, as, as you want. But I can talk about the talk about the, the the controversies. I can then sort of put a stop and say, you know, what does this mean more generally? And then I can talk about, you know, why I'm passionate about about this. So so, so I don't do climate, but I do do work, you know, as, as, as this, my colleague here, do work on human competence. And I tend to think that people are pretty competent, 
much more competent than a lot of other people do. I think we agree on we agree on that, and I think I understand. I think there's research on why we exaggerate other people's incompetence. It's because we exaggerate our own competence as communicators and uh, and, and 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 so on. So I can, you know, I could, I can talk about, you know, the few pieces of evidence that I've collected over the years, and you know, where I think that they're still, still controversial. But I'm, but why am I passionate about this? And this you can take or leave. That I think that those psychologists who make a career making fun of other people are undermining the, you know, in their own way, as best they can, unwittingly, are undermining the the strength of our of our society. And uh, and I don't like that. And, you could care about that, that, that or not, but this is a you know kind of a distinction that I can make that allows me to live with, uh, with myself. So I guess it's sort of let me say things that in the natural these are all consistent with who I, with who I am, but let me kind of distinguish between the roles. Next question. Oh yeah, this wasn't so much a, uh, a philosophical or grand esoteric question, but. Going back a few minutes to the uh, discussion about how to handle the media, since I actually work at a mid-market TV station, I thought I'd throw out in a couple of helpful hints. Is, okay, say I'm Brian, the reporter at our TV station, and I have a bachelor's degree in history or English or something. So at 9.30, we have a news meeting, and the assistant news director says, well, uh, Jennifer, I want you to do the story today on uh, Paris Hilton, and you have a photographer for one hour, so go out and get that story. And uh, Brian, I saw something in the paper about how, uh, how uh, because when you have a, a weather station in a city location, it is readings that might be a little too warm or falsely warm readings. Therefore, uh, so global warming, the whole issue, it's, it's a non-issue. So Brian, I want you to go out and do that story. Now, what she doesn't say is, I want you to go research the story for a couple of days and find out what you discover and get and do a nice scientific story about it. She says, I want you to do a story that's going to be on the air in a few hours about how that, about how a downtown uh, weather station gives false readings so that global warming is not real. So that's what your story is. So I'm going to call the climatologist and say, I want to come talk to you about global warming. Oh, great. That sounds great. So I'll come down with my photographer, you know, and uh, we'll get a couple of sound bites, and I'll make those sound bites fit what I was told to do. So if, and at the end of the day, you'll, you'll, be on, you'll watch the TV station, and here's scientist so-and-so says that, yeah, the, the false readings because of the urban heat island effect mean that there probably isn't any such thing as global warming. And he may have not even known what the, and that's how it works, because you only have a few hours to do your story. You're told what the angle of the story is going to be. So I guess, if you're a scientist, and my advice would be, if you're a scientist and you get a call from a television station, you've got to know, you've got to ask, well, what is the angle of the story? Because I guarantee there's an angle that they were told is going to be the angle of that story at the end of the day. And if, if they say, well, the angle is that uh, the urban heat island effect means there's no such thing as a global warming, it's, not, it's a non-issue, then, then you can't just say no. My advice would be to, to say, okay, let's, why don't we replace that story? Here's, here's what I think a better story is. I'll replace your story with what I think is the story. And therefore, they'll have something to bring back to their news director and their assistant news director. And then at the end of the day, you'll get your story on the air the way you wanted it told. You can't just 
you can't just go in blind without knowing what the angle of the story is going to be or supposed to be. And uh, if you don't like the angle, you can always replace it with something better. So I don't know if that helps or not, but if you're working with at least a local TV station, they've only got a few hours, they've been told what the angle is gonna be before they go out, and you've gotta find out before you talk to them what that angle is gonna be when they put the story together. And if you don't like it, make sure you steer them in a better direction so that what you think is the true science gets on the air. You raise another issue though. Oh, go ahead. Okay. Well, I'll, this I'll raises actually a question for me. How many people here attending are actually scientists? Oh, oh, good. Okay, so I, so I thought it was more communications people, because it was because it t it tends to be the scientists that um, need to come to these communication workshops, and it's it, it's either scientists are already interested in communication or people who are professional communicators are here. So the question is, and something Tony said is he said he wanted us to start asking questions among ourselves too, and I actually don't know the answer to this, is how many research um, organizations like NCAR, for example, actually teach communications to their scientists, and are the scientists interested, um, and, and is there any sort of one-day workshop, and this also goes to the gentleman who talked about, from meteorology, I'm sorry, I can't see, if I'm, I'm sorry, who, which man that was, about how do you get out and you talk to, was here, was here. Um, how do you get out and how, how do you convince your, your scientists that you, that you need to frame or think about how you get the communications out there? And I would say at least start with maybe a, a communications workshop, but I actually don't know what the answer is, is to what degree that any scientists are given any discussion about how to reach the public. Bob Pinson from U the UCAR Communications Office. We have in fact had uh, sessions where we have brought in experts to work with our scientists, uh, both in a group setting and with one-on-one -on -one, uh, interview style um, sessions where you have a camera and they're practicing being on camera, being pitched questions and so forth. And those have been extremely valuable. Uh, many times just in the process of 15 or 30 minutes, they will realize, oh, uh, that isn't really what I meant to say or I didn't mean to phrase it that way. And we'll, they'll pick up tips along the way. So. Uh, yeah, we're working in that direction. It could be expensive to bring in really the top-notch people who can do that process in a really efficient way. But our scientists are very open. The ones who um, spend a lot of time with the media, I think, really appreciate that kind of input. And we've also done this with uh, promising young scientists who haven't had a lot of experience with media. Uh, so you're kind of starting fresh with them and getting them on the right foot as they uh, become more media savvy. So, it's Because it's been my experience that a lot of scientists do want to talk to the media and they are enthusiastic, but they're shy about it and they really don't have any, you know, they don't have any training, they're not sure how to talk to a reporter, they're scared about talking to reporters, and so they just opt out. It is, and in fact, one thing we have to watch for is you get a, a scientist who's enthusiastic but hasn't done much of this. They do their first interview, they're all excited, and then the final product comes out and they're crestfallen because <laughs> they only get, uh, you know, three seconds on the air or one quote and it's not what they were hoping would get in there. So, yeah, then you have to do this sort of triage and tell them, no, that's, that's fine, you know, not every story is going to work out the way you want it to, but in the long run, the more you do this, the, the more effective you'll be and it's, it's all good. So. Chris, did you have a comment? Yeah, the, the, the story that we, we told, the editor assigning a bogus story and the journalist having to deliver it uh, raises another very important issue. I mean, 
many times scientists have bad experiences with journalists and sometimes they, that leads them to distrust journalists. Uh, often, in fact, science journalists, science writers love science, you know, and they don't want to be burning scientists. Uh, and they're not who should be complained about. It is editors. Editors should be reached out to uh, much, much more systematically than individual journalists. Editors should be educated. They're making a lot of these calls. And oftentimes, you know, the object of your frustration is not the reporter who wrote the story. Yeah, um, Alan, you're next. I had one follow-on question I wanted to throw back at you. I almost, my initial reaction to your story was thank you, first of all, for being candid. <laughs> and secondly, I kept asking myself, where's the journalistic standards? Who's enforcing standards here? And anyway. Well, I wanted to share my experience in Vermont, which is quite different. And in Vermont, in any sense, it is different from the nation, but uh, it has... <laughs> one is I'm a scientist and I'm independent. I've lived there for 30 years. The other is I've had nothing but excellent relations with all the media. The, the, I couldn't have written the articles about what I'm doing better. I get asked by Vermont Public Radio, it's time for another commentary. Um, you know, just get three minutes, but you can deal with one issue. And in the last couple of months, the statewide newspaper has embarked on a venture. It's decided Vermont needs and wants a global environment and its impact on Vermont, it, part of the Sunday newspaper. So we've been given a couple of pages. We are allowed to appoint the editor. I'm essentially the science advisor. We can basically map out on a weekly basis with a couple of pages what is going on and what it means for Vermont. So. Of course, it's an old newspaper founded in 1794. It's completely outside of many of the mainstream of what many of you are dealing with. But they are also putting it out on the web. The blogging has started. It started last Sunday, actually. So I'm optimistic that there are pockets in our society where the traditional models and their failures don't work. But I have a much broader question which bothers me again from a community which collectively is becoming very concerned about the issue because we see what is happening to the Vermont environment. And that is the American model that puts such value and on essentially individualism in all its present forms is incompatible with the future of our global environment, both ecologically and the planet as a whole from a human perspective. And we are not really addressing that issue. You see it absolutely critically at the current stage of the election where that's not being addressed. And to me, that is a scientific question. That is a scientific question of an incompatibility between the global ecosystem and what we accept as the norms of our society and its fragmented structure and our so-called democracy, etc., etc. And the community that understands that better than most is the religious community in the north. They can see the relationship between our consumer society and its values and our responsibility for it and in their world God's creation and thy will be done on earth and all those kind of issues. And this is an interesting paradox but I, w I want you to comment if you can on how 
how we can deal with an issue as fundamental as the incompatibility with the structure and our value system with what is happening to the planet. Get ready for long-term <laughs> change, if any change. Because I mean, we're talking about how hard it is to move people away from their core values. And you know, this is sort of a core American narrative that's been with us for centuries. Um, so to, to unseat that one, um, you know, freedom of opportunity, you know, self-determination, you can become what you want, and the individual has a great chance to succeed and thrive. It's tough, that one's, you know, I mean, put it very bluntly, what is going to happen in the next decade or two when that value system is swept away by the tide of I events? I don't disagree with you. I'm just saying that it's deeply embedded. I, I understand yeah, that. Yeah, I'm yeah. well aware of it. Yeah. I mean, you see it every day. But the tide of events which are being driven by the scientific nature of the world and how we have impinged on it and all the other ecological issues and population and energy and all those is going to sweep that away. That's the issue we have to deal with, and it's a much bigger issue than the one that is being dealt with, even within the frame of most of these discussions. Well, I mean, I, in, in some sense, I think you answered your own question in terms of, you know, how do you, how's the belief change going to occur, right? When you talk about the religious example, I mean, that's a, that's a fantastic uh, situation where, you know, this, uh, the, the types of surveys that Tony talked about at the beginning, um, there was post-Kyoto a, a real holdout, particularly among sort of conservative evangelicals about uh, the exist, they were sort of one of the last groups to accept in large mass that climate change was occurring and that human causes were a factor, although that's changing now. And the question is, well, well how might that have changed? And I'm reminded, I told the story last night, of, of conversations I had with, with some religious leaders about how would we talk about this? You know, how, the, the exact question I was asked was, how would I do a sermon about climate change? And my answer was, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. What I would do instead is take a sermon that you know, you're, where you know you get the audience's attention, where you know that there's a, you know, you're building up to a climax about responsibility, you know, about stewardship. You, you've, you've had this sermon for years, you know it works, you know the moment at which you have everybody's attention and you deliver the punchline. And at that moment, tie that punchline to climate change. Because if you walk in as, as sort of a religious leader and say, well, today we're gonna to talk about climate change, in the back of a lot of people's minds is gonna be, why you? Why, why are you talking about this? What's your expertise? But if it's already, here's a set of shared values we have, and this issue is consistent with the values we already have, that's one of the most, that's, that's one of the most effective ways to get people thinking about it. And so that works in a religious group. But to, to try and, you know, if we talk about climate change in an abstract form, for a lot of us it's interesting. But if you want to sort of have mass cultural change, there, you know, people from their own perspective, from their own sort of life experiences, right, they're going to have to have some presentation where there's the aha moment. Here's something I'm, I already believe and I'm already comfortable with. And yes, something, I can, something that's going to happen as a result of change or something I can do, now I see it. But us telling them, look, there, there's, you know, there's 50,000 scientific studies and over 49,999 of them are all in the same direction. Uh, for a lot of people, that, that's not so meaningful in terms of their life experiences. I actually feel a little bit cynical about this. So the other side of it, as a reporter, what you do is, it, I think we approach it as a war of attrition. You just keep doing the stories, you keep doing the stories. And I've noticed there's been a change in, the, in how the, 
the public has begun to receive these stories maybe in the last year or so. But human beings, what being what they are, um, what's been discussed for a long time is people won't really change their minds until it affects them, and probably until it affects them in the pocketbook. And so scientists will say, you know, when those insurance rates start going up, I mean, this is really practical stuff along the coast of Florida, as they already have. Um, as, you know, you have events like Katrina, people start thinking about that. As, as scientists said to me, and it has to be even more specific than that, you have to be able to say to the person, there just won't be more severe weather incidents, you know, you won't have more maybe tornadoes, but there'll be a tornado that comes through your backyard in the month of May, you have to be very specific, I mean, I'm not saying you can be specific, in the month of May in 2010, and then people think, oh, well, maybe, you know, maybe I should start thinking about this. And it's interesting because your language was um, the, t the tide of events and you talked about sweeping away. And I thought that actually will be the moment when people really get the picture, when they go up to the Arctic and they see the melting if they can, or they see those pictures, or they notice that the climate is changing around them, and now it suddenly doesn't seem like the way it's always changed, that it actually has to affect people personally, and I think that we're all just hoping, hoping that that's going to happen really fast, because I'm not convinced entirely that you can persuade people just with these words, even though that's the business that I'm in. Well, okay. uh, uh, go ahead. Well, just as an, as an example, this, you know, on the West, uh, I know about this on the West Coast, I know what's going on all over the world. Um, there are, are fisheries, right, and there's questions about sustainable fishing, right? If you tell people you can't, we're going to have a marine protected area and you can't fish here, you're not going to get the fishermen on your side. But if you, show, if you can show them, look, here is a way where you can have a lot of fish today and a lot of fish tomorrow. If you fish in one way, you can have a lot of fish today and a lot of fish tomorrow. But if you keep fishing the way you're doing, you can have a lot of fish today and none tomorrow all of a sudden people become supporters of limits on trolling and marine protected reserves and so forth. And that's worked very effectively in certain parts of the world. And that's that, you know, going to self-interest. But that's one way to, to get people, aha, oh, fish tomorrow, you know, my family's been in this business for a long time. That matters to me. Yeah. My kind of citizen, I mean, I think that, I think this is truly sort of, sort of kind of a heart of the, maybe this is a matter that has multiple hearts, so this is a heart of this, of, of this, uh, of the, this matter. And I, what my pessimism is that that the institutional response to this will not to be the detailed will be not to do the sort of detailed design and scientific work in order to craft messages that fill the gaps in people's understanding, resonate with their deepest values, offer them alternatives that are meaningful in, in their lives, that the institutional response is, to, is going to be to dash out a few ideas and give it to the ad agency to do a big buy and, and put, push it out there. I think that I, it, I, that's my real, real pessimism, that we as scientific institutions are going to be bedazzled by the people who know how to make us feel good about, uh, you know, about something that, that any evaluation would show isn't going to, going to work. And, and the kind of detailed work here is sort of what we've had here, I and mean, part of what we've talked about, you know, you've talked about as well. There are things that resonate for different people. Uh, Skip and I and... Uh, Richard Somerville and we're at a, at a panel like this about at the AAAS, and uh, Jane Lubchenco gave a gave a talk about maybe some of you have have heard it about the sort of the dead zone off the Oregon coast, uh, you know, due to an interruption in the in the in the coastal upwelling, arguably you know probabilistically related to some some something to do here. As somebody who lived in Oregon, it made me sick, you know it. You know, this was something that worked for me 
you know, it was pure science, I think, and and there will be different things that work for you know for you know for, for for different people. We have to figure out a way to communicate it to them. So I think so. You know, a couple of pieces that occurred to me while you were talking is is the one of the bits of science that we need, you know, sort of what people like myself do, is that people have difficulty extrapolating nonlinear dynamic processes. So we sort of have to run the numbers for them. It works in in, in it works in seatbelt usage and condom failure and a bunch of other things but you can't expect people to, to do that, but you can explain it to them and give them an intuitive feeling for that. A second thing is that there's often kind of, well, we, to use some jargon, we've got science, we've got jargon too, there's, something, there's a kind of pluralistic ignorance about some areas so that the, the degree of pro-social willingness to engage in pro-social collaborative behavior, even in a you know in a, in a very individualistic society, is much greater than is often apparent to other other people. So, to getting out the message that there is a willingness for certain kinds of collective solutions that you know that resonate you know that work well for people that are scientifically sound, and why it is that we don't uh, why why it is that we we don't see them it would be a kind of science might be kind of an interesting story and and might kind of prime the pump for those, you know, politicians, spiritual leaders, whatever, who can come up with those uh, solutions. Next question. Yeah, I was just going to respond. Uh, perhaps I, I, you had asked about journalistic integrity. I didn't want to paint too uh, cynical a picture. Uh, I don't think, at least in terms of my experience with television news, uh, I don't think there's a, an intent to be unethical. I think most of the people are good people that really want to tell a good story and get the truth across, but sometimes that may become a victim of the fact that you've got budget cuts, you don't have enough reporters, you don't have enough time. When you're sent out in the morning at 9.30, you have to get a story on the air that's going to be on the air at 5 o'clock. And you have to remember the thing that we've been talking about is most of these reporters have no science education, well, very little, if any, science education. So they may not know the difference between good science and nonsense. You know, I yeah. just, I, I live in Cape Girardeau, Missouri, which happens to be the hometown of Rush Limbaugh. Not that, you know, I want to drop any names. But, <laughs> but so, so there is an upside, and that is if you can, that's why I say if you're a scientist and you get a call from a reporter, if you can find out what the story is, They've got their angle already set and assigned to them, but if you can find out and say, oh, you know, I've got a better story. Here's what I think we need to get across, and this is really exciting stuff. They'll be glad to go with that story if they can bring something back. So yeah. uh, it's not that there's a, an intent to be unethical. It's just that that may become a victim of all the other media pressures that I'm sure exist in, in radio and news, newspaper as well, which is, has to do with time and budgets and manpower and all that kind of thing. And if I seem to uh, infer ethics, I apologize because I wasn't making any ethical. Uh, what I was concerned about was a process behind the scenes, uh, you know, a process that I described early on in my quick uh, intro to this uh, panel discussion, and that is uh, where journalistic standards are applied even before you go out the door. In other words, so that um, in essence, so that you're not pitching in the end 
what may be dubbed down the road as misinformation. In, in other words, it has no context. And so that was my only concern was that uh, I wanted to uh, be uh, reassured that there was a process behind the scenes and I'm not so reassured, but anyway. Can I respond to one, one yeah. thing that you mentioned? Um, you, it's, good, it's great to have a science education but you don't need to apologize for not having one because there, there's not, uh, I'm going to suggest that there's not that big a difference between what scientists do and what you do. But the difference is small, but it's important, right? What differentiates a scientific argument from a non-scientific argument is the method by which the conclusion is reached. And people have different methods, but the, 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 the foundations are transparency and replicability, right? The reason that a scientific claim is seen as legitimate is because in principle you lay out all your procedures for how you had it someone else could run the same procedures and could tell whether you're right or wrong that's what gives the whole enterprise its legitimacy and so if now you're trying to so I mean a I'd say that that's what that's what scientists do that's what they pride themselves on or at least the ones that are trying to do science in terms of then trying to figure out it, you mentioned how do I know whether this is a serious person or, or a charlatan you can use that to your advantage, right? Because um, uh, the, the peer review process, it can be a powerful way to try and sort out whether this is transparent and replicable. Now, lots of people complain, can claim peer review. Well, I was going to say, I do have a science background. Oh, okay. Which, which I had mentioned before, but I was kind of giving you... Oh, a hypothetical, A of hypothetical, course. which might be more typical, because uh, Joe Witte, I guess, had mentioned that he does very often at a local television station, the evening weather guy may be the only guy at the whole station with any kind of science degree at all. And he's usually not the one out doing the reporting. So that's, that's, that's why it's very important if you are a scientist to understand that going in, that the reporter that's coming to you may not know, which, you know yeah. what's legitimate, what's not, you know, and, and, and you've got to kind of steer them in the right direction so that they have a a good story to put on the air that, that, that you want to get out there. I'm going to throw out something that sounds like a defense of reporters, and, and I, I won't defend them completely, but what, what Chris said about talking to editors is actually really important, because I know a lot of reporters who really want to do these stories, and, and the venue for them is just shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. So I've talked to a lot of scientists. I, mean, I wish I could come to meetings like this and do dozens of stories, and I can't. My reporter says I want two. So that means really good stories I don't report on, unfortunately. And then even if you're, if I'm privileged like I am to do really hard science, um, if you're working for another outlet, you might not be able to. Or if anyone's been following the New York Times um, science section, which is excellent, you've noticed that the coverage has been moving a little bit towards um, health and medicine. They, they won't do as many of the, of the physical, the physics, for example, or some of the hard sciences. That's because they get this pressure, as many newspapers do, to do what we call news you can use. And a lot of that is going to be, someone's smiling here, so they've, they've heard this term. So um, the, the idea is this is going to be medicine or something that the, the reader can use. They can go home and they use it. It's hard to figure out how to use the, um, the physical properties of the moon, Enceladus and the Saturnian system. You know, how do I really use that? But actually, if we can talk about heart disease, maybe I can. So what I'm saying is that I wish we could just let the reporters go out and do what they really want to do, and you would have this fantastic science coverage. But they are, there's a strangle um, for, putting out, for putting out articles that will sell papers, for example, that will bring in adver advertising, will bring in revenue, 
And many times, as Chris said, it's the editor who is saying, you know, put a spin on that so, so that people will listen to this story. So let's put this spin on it. The editor doesn't know. But if you can talk to the editor and convince them that these are important science stories, I mean, this is in, a, in an ideal world, right? You are then exactly maybe you, right about that. The editor, that for television there's well. this trickle down, and then they'll say to the reporter, they might, you know, maybe you can put it, you don't have to put such a spin on this um, story, and you can actually do some proper reporting, which is what Tony referred to. Hi, good morning. First of all, thank you for all of your insights. Um, my name is Hannah Campbell, and I work for NOAA. I came to NOAA from Vermont, so I kind of went from the pocket to the pocketbook, sort of, hopefully, um, is that we, in the scientific community and in the um, greater federal institutions and other institutions, treat communication a little bit like the community and, and politics treat climate change, in that we think it's important, we value it, um, and we put some resources into it, but not very many. And when we see successes, we don't do a very good job of expanding those and valuing them. And I think that Chris Mooney brought this up a lot with, when talking about how institutions value that kind of work and whether or not people are tenured, whether or not people are valued for that kind of work. And I guess my question is, do you have ideas about how to um, communicate that kind of thing inside of our own institutions? And um, try to put the value that we have for good instruments, good data, good analysis into um, integration and supporting the crashes at intersections so that people can actually, you know, do that on a greater scale and not just in these little pockets, some of which is, you know, funded by other agencies and some nonprofits and other institutions are doing a good job of doing that in little places, but we haven't done a good job of really recognizing that value and supporting it overall. I would talk to funders. <laughs> okay, uh, well that's, you know, I mean institutions will change uh, if funders ask them to, among other things. In this case, the funders might be Congress, and there was actually a bill that was supposed to um, empower NSF to make grants, if I remember exactly what it was, to provide communication training for science graduates, and then Congress didn't give it any money. So if that had actually had money, you would have seen universities, institutions respond. So that's, that's one obvious thing, is take the message there. I just want to say a real quickly, though, there have been instances where actually there has been funding for that type of thing that if you understand the greater scheme of how federal institutions work can also be reallocated for things like making sure that the technical instruments are more, you know, are okay. happening, which is also important. So it's a big compromise and mm. it's a value system within the scientific community, which is important and integral so that we have, you know, sound science. But we've been, um, in my personal opinion, not as a NOAA employee, um, devaluing this idea of really looking at who's being effective at communicating the science and how we can support that. So. If I could, I, I wanted to just answer your question the way that I answered one earlier. If you're trying to look for a change within the organization, um, if there's clarity about what your goals are and a commitment to measure them, that's, that's the basis of a conversation. So if the goal is running a survey, we can measure where you've done that. If the goal is getting lots of exposure in the media, we can measure that too. If the goal is leading people who, um, leading other people to change how they're thinking or raise their awareness, you know, uh, knowing that you measured a survey, knowing that you got, you know, 100 media organizations covered is, isn't going to tell you what you need to know. Um, you, there are ways to evaluate it. You can go out, you can run focus groups, you can run surveys, things like that. Not that hard to do, right? And actually, I mean, I think a lot of, sometimes the reason people don't do this is because they really don't want to know. 
right? You spend a couple million dollars on one of these on, on one of these things, and then you know if you ask two or three thousand randomly selected people and only one has heard of it, it, I mean, I think that's useful to know if your goal is to try and impact people. But I think a lot of people, for reasons we talked about before, would rather just assume that somehow people are getting it. I, one, one thought is is to think of who who management listens to. So I can think of a you know some university presidents who are kind of from the right disciplines who see this communication role as it, you know they they view they would like to redefine the mission of the university in, in service to society in this way and they might be persuasive to you know to the management in, in, in other places. It's kind of a peer to peer thing. I could imagine the National Academy as well. Um, taking a, a more considerate approach to the whole idea of communication and really beginning to break it down and elevate, its, elevate the discussion about it and the seriousness of, look, do we know how to communicate or don't we? And if we don't, why not? And how do we go about doing it? So I think there are a lot of institutional ways, but it's like everything else. You've got to sort of percolate it up somehow. And I think individual efforts that aggregate over time, I guess, in part. Next question. Hello, I'd like to conduct a little experiment right now, right here, that I think the panel can help me with. Uh, my name is Josh Foster. I'm with the NOAA Climate Program Office. Um, I'm a social scientist or a political scientist by training. I'm probably the only one in NOAA. I wrote my uh, graduate thesis on um, international climate negotiating, um, international climate negotiations, negotiating dynamics and framing issues. I've been working for NOAA for about 13 years on a team of people, including Hanna over there, just asked the last question, on, um, on finding better ways to communicate climate information, mostly to expert communities, mostly what we euphemistically call stakeholders. Um, I want to just, well, before I go on, I want to say to Tony that this is really like, one of the best, uni uniformly best panels I've ever been to in the last four years. Um, the last six years I've been coming to AMS. Um, Dr. Fishoff, I think I read some of your work when I, was, um, when I was working on my thesis, and Steve Schneider is one of the people that got me into the whole field, and uh, Molly, I think I've heard, I'm sure I've heard your work on, on, um, on uh, the radio, and uh, my, my girlfriend's actually, she's a polar scientist, and so she, she was doing ice cores in Greenland, so. Um, and uh, Chris, you, um, you, I've, I've read your articles on, or I've seen your article on framing science. That was a really great article. I've seen your stuff on, on, on uh, your testimony on the Hill. And, and um, Dr. Lupia, um, I, I've just, you know, probably just met you for the first time now in terms of your work, but I'm familiar with John Krosnick's work. And uh, you totally remind me of the guy on numbers who helps, who's the, the crime-solving mathematician in terms of your <laughs> approach to things. Anyway, when, when we go out and, and uh, when I go out and talk to um, uh, stakeholders, two things, I, simple things I try to do. One is connect on a, on a um, personal level, which is one thing that you guys recommended. The other thing is um, not only to help them get them involved in the potential solutions, which is what um, John Krosnick recommends, but also to sort of get them invested in sort of the moral dimension of or the, their obligation to take on those solutions. So for example, when I go to talk to extension um, farmers in either Indiana or Idaho, first thing I do is I tell them about my dad who's an extension agent in, um, in Indiana for part of his graduate career. Um, and what I do to them, I, I say, I have information, you have a sense of what you need, what your solutions are, 
help me understand what your needs are so I can help you meet them and we can then together work on solving these problems. When I go up to the Hill and I give us some sort of a science briefing, I try to say to the congressional staff I meet with, um, uh, I, we have a great story about, about NOAA science um, that you can bring to your constituents and you can say, we have solutions that we can bring to, um, or we have stories that you can tell your constituents about what they can do to help solve these scientific, these um, global climate change problems. Or when I go to um, urban planners in Connecticut, um, uh, I say, you're an expert community that can help translate information developed by the scientific community into um, solutions for your cities, you can help us communicate, you can help us do the long-term planning. So how can we work together to solve these things? So, so my question for you right now is, did I connect with you guys on a personal level? Um, how well have I learned the lessons of this panel and, uh, and um, um, what sort of, um, uh, uh, was, was my argument persuasive? <laughs> do you want the answer? Well, that's how we learn. Sure. Flattery works, but yeah. that's already been published. <laughs> so, so honestly, um, I got the personal connection. Right now, I can't. If you ask me in one sentence, what was the point of your of your presentation? I can't remember, except that you you, you sort of know all of us, and, and you were political scientists. But I think that wasn't your conclusion, right? So there wasn't a the in, in terms of building up. You, you can think of trying to build a crescendo. So I'm giving a presentation, I'm signaling that there's a question, I'm reinforcing that question, and I'm building up to the moment where I'm gonna answer that question, and that's gonna be the crescendo. So I think your presentation didn't have one of those. It had, it had sort of a good beginning, but the end sort of, so I don't, I mean, we can ask the others too, but what was the point of what he just said? Right, yeah. can, can you come yeah. up? Yeah. No, that we're right. I'll agree, I got stuck on the image, of, um, we were talking here about you just take away one image. When you said you had heard me on the BBC, I was thinking, well, does he listen to the World Service? Or when did I last do a story on Greenland? And so then I was sort of off and running in my own, you know, narcissistic thoughts about what story I'd last done on, on Greenland. I mean, I'm being honest. Thank you, Jean. So in other words, um, I created some great moments, but maybe not the right one, so. <laughs> Thank you, Josh, and like I said to people at the beginning and you know, a few minutes ago, this is a process and we're gonna stay with this process of unraveling this notion of communication to the best that we can. I mean, insofar as we can grab hold of it, it's gonna take some time and effort, but see us next year and we'll do this again and we'll have uh, a different discussion that builds on this. So, uh, sorry to throw that in there, but Self-serving. Uh, Tony, I'm Florence Betterer with the National Snow and Ice Data Center in Boulder, Colorado, part of the University of Colorado. And uh, Tony Scoci uh, started the panel off with a series of thought-provoking questions, and one of them was, why do we get frustrated as scientists when we try to communicate what we what we know? And I, so I've been thinking about that on and off ever since. And and uh, one, the first thing that came to my mind was, I care, I care passionately about the Earth and stuff. But then I realized that, nah, the real reason or one real reason is egoism. So, um, I, and I'm wondering if you could just maybe the panel could address that, that issue of, you know, channeling emotional responses to uh, frustration and uh, what to do with your ego as a scientist when you're trying to communicate. 
I mean, the problem that you just described is the problem that almost every advocate has or every sort of elite group that tries to communicate. You have a set of things you care about and you have a set of things that you've established that you know, right? And so from some perspective, and, and, and a lot of your peer group sort of believes the same things, right? And so there are these moments where it's like, well, why can't everyone believe this? Right, so, so everybody has that, but that is the moment in terms of, of, of trying to make an effective communication. That's the moment where good intentions can become bad practices. Because the frustration, the fr I think I would say the frustration is really that the situation you're dealing with isn't how you want it to be. That the audience isn't, you know, you have some ideal version of what the audience should be like and they're not that way. And you have some ideal version of how the media was organized and they're not that way. And so, you know, what happens is you get a lot of people who then their reaction is, well, it must be their fault. It's the media and it's the stupid people, right? I mean, that's the thing that Baruch and I kind of get hit with all the time. And, you know, what both of us try and suggest is, well, instead of thinking about these ideals, which are not going to, these sort of false ideals, which are not going to be helpful to you, why don't you think about where you are and think about what you can do at that point. And I think if I can get people to that point, their frustration disappears. Because now it's, uh, okay, now it's about building challenges that you actually have some chance of achieving in the situation that you're really in, as opposed to the ideal. When I gave the beginning, when I, uh, at the beginning of my talk, I made some reference to 17th and 18th century folk theories of learning and knowledge. That's exactly what leads to this frustration, right? Well, people should be interested. There should be this populace where people do seek out the information, right? That's not happening now, and it never happened, right? Uh, the difference is now we, now we have some knowledge as to why. Um, but you know, the, the key to frustration is kind of, no, I'll use some vernacular, but just get real, you know? I mean, the, <laughs> I think Arthur hit on the point I was trying to make, and that was, uh, and very simply put, is that um, did you mean to inform or did you mean to provoke a behavior change? And if you were upset because the behavior changed and you meant to inform, you know, you have to, I, I was just merely trying to get people to think about what it is they were trying to do. And exactly the way Arthur said, have a strategy ahead of time. What do you want to do? Why do you want to do it? What are you looking to get out of it? Yeah, Bill. Just very quickly, I'm Bill Hook with the AMS, and just very quickly, I think both those mean to inform or mean to uh, get change are inadequate for, we need to use the same discipline we use in a marriage, which is if I go to my spouse, and my only goal is either to inform or get her to change, I've started down a very dangerous path. Okay, so exercise that discipline. The first thing is understand. Okay, I need to understand her and then sort of work from there. And I actually think however much we might think the issue with climate change and so on and the, the importance of it is different, it's not. <laughs> Another intersection. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> do we have uh, Do we have another question? Oh, go ahead. Hi. Good morning. I've enjoyed this very much. My name is Rick Nab. I'm one of the forecasters at the National Hurricane Center. Interact with the media quite a bit. Uh, we consider the media to be our partners in what we do. We couldn't accomplish our mission without the media. Uh, of course, there are challenges of that relationship. Uh, a lot of the times, things that we say, <clears throat> the media doesn't understand because we didn't convey it very clearly. There are other times when the media doesn't understand enough about what we do. 
uh, and so there's a <clears throat> there's a there's a gap a lot of times between uh, what we want uh, to communicate and what ends up getting communicated. And one thing that we've thought through is that maybe we need to spend a lot more time interacting with the media other than when we're being interviewed. In, in other words, we spend a lot of time educating the emergency managers on our products and services and what we do, because uh, a lot of them don't have a science background, but they need to use our products. We haven't done as much of that with the media. And then when I think of all the media outlets that are out there in print and, 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 uh, and radio and television and, and the internet, there's just so many people that we interact with that we would have to reach in order to understand better what they do and educate them about what we do. That seems like a very daunting task, but maybe it's worth the effort. And I wanted your thoughts on how much education uh, is worth doing and how much spending time understanding what the media is doing is worth doing. So that if we communicate before, we have to communicate during a real event. Maybe, think, maybe the real event will go more like both sides want it to go. If I could, I, in, in the context of the question you're asking, the first thing I'd say is I'm not sure there is anything called the media anymore. And this matters, right? There, there's no, and so what I would say is pick your spots, right? I mean, would it be possible for you to have a seminar to invite people into your center for a day, maybe two, pick reporters from entity, from, from agencies where, where you think they'd be good conduits and, and educate them? That could be a great use of your time, a great, you know, and it could be a great use of their time. I mean, so what I'm saying is since there's no more of the media, since there's all different types of people, Think about the outlets where you really, you know, think you can provide the most value, and invite those folks in for a day, you know, and have seminars for them. I know in the survey field that I that I work in, I mean, you know, if you want to talk, the, the surveys, particularly in a political situation, are all over the place talking about polls, ranging from things that are actually accurate about polls to to, to making claims that are just totally outrageous. Um, one way that uh, the professional association APOR. Has, has endeavored to try and help, is they, they'll have these seminars where they'll bring selected reporters in for, for training and say, you know, here's what a poll is, and here's what you can say about it, here's what you can't, and here's how it works. And it sounds like you might be in the same, same situation. Um, yeah. yeah, it would take, um, I agree, and it, would, it, it doesn't take actually that much media research to find out, you probably know already uh, to a large extent, which are the journalists that are regularly covering this, uh, covering. Um, but, but you might want to reach out further because there might be people who you can anticipate that they would in a given situation. So, so it seems to me that it wouldn't be a huge cost to do it. In fact, it's Andy Rivkin of the New York Times gives that advice frequently, is try to uh, invite your local news media to, uh, to lunch when you're not necessarily selling a story. In other words, just saying hello. Try and get them, though. This goes, oh, this goes to, to your question, but also to the, to the woman's question who asked about what do you do with all this energy and this emotion. And um, sometimes when I talk to scientists, I feel like they, they have to scrub all that from their way of talking to me about science. And, and I've been on the other side of being interviewed, and it's intimidating. And you feel like, 
if I make if I say something wrong, they're going to use it, and, and so you're just constantly editing yourself. But if you can get a relationship with with the journalist, and I mean a relationship that goes both ways, where you realize some of this is a performance, and it certainly is on radio, it definitely is on TV. Um, we can talk about it. So I appreciate when when scientists say to me. I'm really frustrated. I've done this story. I mean, I keep talking to reporters. They get the points wrong, and then I'm receptive to what do they get wrong? Ah, you know, because maybe I was maybe I was making um, logical missteps as well. But say that our job together is to try to do the story. Now, ultimately, you have to you have to trust the journalist. But but have a conversation with the two of you. That's not just about here is my data. Uh, yes, well, this is what we'll do. But this is my data, and I don't know how to get this out, and I don't know how to tell this story. And and Three reporters got it wrong, and so what do I do? You can express that to your um, to your journalist because we're both on the same side. And another thing is, um, in this idea of things to do, you know, you call back your reporter if, if they get it wrong. Also, have them repeat back to you. So if you're a scientist and you're saying X, Y, Z, here's some data, and say and say to the reporter, do you understand or do you mind just repeating back? What I just said, and they'll repeat it, and they may get it wrong. You say no, and then you can you can correct them. So you can you can turn it into a learning discussion and not just a plain interview. Any other questions? Well, anyway, it's been an interesting morning, and uh, I want to thank a really exceptional group of folks for joining AMS and this panel in particular. And uh, thank you very much for a rich discussion.